Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 970 with Chef Ian Fleischman. So, same guy I said, do or do not. His name's Kazu. You know, we, we clean the hoods because there's a hood above each table. We had 14 tables. You know, everybody once a month would pitch in and we would stay there later on Saturdays. We would all break them down. Every night after we all got done, I would see him get up on the tables and he would grab Windex and he would polish one hood a night by himself. You know, the first two years you look at him like, man, he's wasting his time. What is he doing? And, you know, two years later, I'm at four years and it's like, I know exactly what he's doing and I'm up there with him. It's just the love and the care because, you know, you know, after three weeks, there's some grease dripping down at the hood. This is this is a Michelin star restaurant. It's It's just caring. It's just caring, man. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Zinch. For restaurants, large costs can pop up fast, but the traditional loan process can be too slow. And that's why I need to tell you about Zinch. They are a direct lender that makes the financing process quick, convenient, and accessible. Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days. And all you have to do is fill out a simple online application and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements, and you can get approved within 24 hours. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners, a value of $250. Go to financingthatworks.com to get pre-qualified and see how much financing you could get with Zinch. Loans made or arranged pursuant to California Finance Lenders Law License. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, executive chef of Fable Miami, Ian Fleischman. My man, Ian, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. Dude, I am super excited for this conversation. You have quite the the background, amazing chefs you've worked with, amazing restaurants you've worked at. Uh, I know we're going to take some great takeaways from your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling. And I'm realizing I didn't give you a warning about this with a success quote or mantra. Do you have a success quote and mantra, like something that like, echoes in your mind, something that, you, that echoes throughout your kitchens, uh, something that resonates with you? Oh, absolutely. Uh so I worked for Japanese steakhouses for a long time, and for about five years of that, I had a very, very strict Japanese head chef, only white guy in the kitchen, and his way to relate to me was very simple. It was, 
do or do not. There is no try from Yoda. Mm, do or do not. There is no try. Yeah. I love it. Why, why does that resonate with you? It's very accurate for everything we do in, in this industry. Uh, if you're going to do something, do it 100%. There's no half measures. Because with a half measure, you're more likely to fail. Yeah. Um, with such a competitive industry, too. Um, people, like you literally have to be in the top 20%. So like if, if you're not in the top 20% doing what you're going to do or doing what you're doing, that's, that's like, if you aim for a hundred, there's a better chance of falling within that top 20%, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, great way to get this thing started. So where, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? I guess the tender age of 14, tender age of 14. So where were you at the age of 14? Uh, so I, I grew up on a small farm about 45 minutes outside of Gainesville, Florida, mm-hmm. which is already a pretty small town aside from the college. Uh, my brother-in-law at the time worked as an AC technician and, and after hours he would do calls for restaurants. He always went to this one Japanese steakhouse. Uh, we would get free meals in exchange for the work that he did. And, you know, they cook in front of you and mid cooking in front of us. I just blatantly asked the guy like, Hey, let me wash dishes here. 14. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of respect for child labor laws (laughs) brought me in Friday, Saturdays. So my father would drive 45 minutes each way to drop me off for my, you know, six hour shift. Wow. Uh, so what, what was it like? Was it what you thought it would be? What are the early memories of this industry for you? (laughs) Uh, so I was literally the only Caucasian in the building, right? It was, uh, Vietnamese, Mexicans, uh, Chinese, oddly enough, not any Japanese people in this Japanese steakhouse. Uh, my earliest memories were family meal and like how welcoming everybody was, uh, but how like rough everybody was on me. Okay. Like, how do you not know how to mop a floor? Cause I'm 14. Yeah. <laughs> so like growing up on a farm, being thrown into this like mishmash of cultures, it was like crack man. Like family meal every day was from a different culture. That's cool. And like, I always loved food. Like yeah. I was grossly overweight as a child. <laughs> and this just became like I waited all week for the weekend just to go to work. That's cool. That's a good sign that, you know, you, you're cut out for this industry. So, um, I mean, how long, like 14, were you there throughout high school? Did you, when did you say to yourself that this is going to be my career? So I worked at that place for five years. Okay. Uh, 19 years old. Yeah. Uh, after about six months of washing dishes, they started teaching me how to cook, do prep. At 16, they put me out on the tables. Oh, wow. I was cooking in front of everybody. It was the joke, you know, the white guy in the Japanese steakhouse, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, the guy that I largely considered my mentor there, uh, his name was Ancho, Mexican immigrant, became like my stepfather, man. Okay. He taught me how to be a man in the workplace. What does that mean? How, like if you're teaching somebody how to be a man, like I said, right man, now, like what is that? Like if you're echoing his sentiment, what is that? What, what is the answer to how to be a man in, in the workplace? It was putting yourself like into it a hundred percent. Like I said, do or do not. There is yeah. no try. Yeah. It's like, why are you going to do it halfway good when yeah. somebody else or yourself is going to have to redo it? Yeah. And it just echoed through every little thing. And it, you know, for the first two years we had the same conversation over and over. And then I, I, I kind of got it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, after five years of working with him there, he left. I left. Uh, and he went to what was considered, you know, in that area, the, the biggest Japanese steakhouse in town. They were exponentially busier. 
Is this Yamato by any chance? It is Yamato. Okay, cool. And Yamato was ran by a Japanese guy, owned okay. by a Korean guy. Uh, it was just a monster. Like, that restaurant was doing, you know, 15 million a year back then. Uh, tried to get in the door. They pushed me away. Not you. Not going to happen. Why is that? Because I was white. Okay. I do wonder about that sometimes, man. Um, in a world like of equality and where you're supposed to be an open mind, it seems to be a one-way street sometimes. Like, <laughs> I'm going to get pushed back on saying this, but like in the world of restaurants, like if you want, if you're interested in working in an ethnic restaurant and you're not of that that culture, like you're going to get a lot of pushback. Like, do you think that's fair? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I was a kid. Yeah. And I don't put too much thought in behind it. Like, yeah. I know what I wanted to do, and I wanted to work with my mentor, and I wanted to keep pushing with him. Yeah. And he wasn't very accepted there either. He was Mexican, mm. and yeah. this place was Korean-Japanese. Like, they're a lot more difficult than the place we previously worked. Uh, so finally, after about a year, they let me get in the door, and it was just hellacious. Like, you, you hear about people going to stage for big-name chefs... And how it, it's worth it for them and blah, blah, blah. This wasn't a, a big name chef. Mm-hmm. This is a little Japanese steakhouse where they put 100% without any awards, any accolades. It wasn't about that. It was just by, about doing the job right. And it's a shared tip structure there. So as a table chef, you get 50% of the server's tips. Mm-hmm. And we all pull it and we all break it apart. That's awesome. So if you're not working as hard as the next guy, you go to 80%. So this is going back... Um, as far as 2011, right? This is when we're in that time frame right now. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. That's very progressive uh, as far as a way to find balance between front of house and back of house, right? I think, I think this is something that should be done more often. Honestly, is pulling the all resources into like one pot. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I agree, but it was really just a way for the owner not to pay us. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was what it was. Maybe a combination of that and being paid well too. Yeah, I mean, I loved it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I was 19, 20, 21 making but at this dude, at the same time. It's, it's, I mean, you know, this now, like at the climbing to the top of the ladder, it's hard to, to make a profit in this industry. Mm-hmm. And if you can find a way to get creative, to increase your margins of profit, like you got to do what you got to do. And I think the industry has pushed owners into that position of not taking care of their people because you literally can't survive unless you're being the shit out of your people. Not so much today, but more accurate statement 10 years ago. Yeah, it's fair. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's sometimes we, we beat up owners for not treating their employees well, but at the same time, they, they do it out of survival, you know? And they were forced to do it. It's, it was a messed up industry. I, I blame I blame the consumers for not recognizing the value of a good meal. Uh, but anyway. That, that's a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I don't want to interrupt your story, so keep going. So, so you're trying to work here. Um, you, you're having trouble getting in the door because you don't share the same background the same culture as, as people that, that they typically hire so how do you eventually get in it was through my mentor you know they, yeah. he kept bringing me back in and kept introducing me to the owner kept introducing me to the chefs you know everybody goes out at the end of the night you all go out drinking you know i was 19 20 going yeah. out with all these guys who were you know 30 35 40 uh finally one day it just it worked and i broke in and it was, like I said, hellacious, man. Like like I said, shared pool tips. So if you're not working as hard and as fast as the next guy, they collectively will gang up against you and dock your pay. Really? Yeah, you get you start off at 50% tips. You can work your way up to 100. And that took me six months. So when you say 50% tips, are you saying like 50% of your wages tips? 
Wait, yeah. I don't. Okay. Yeah. So fifty percent of your wage was tips. Got and it. okay, so end of the night, we collected a thousand dollars off of the servers. There's seven of us. Everybody should break that up evenly, right? Got it. No. If you're not working as hard as the next guy, fifty uh, percent of what you make gets distributed to the other guys to make up it. for your inability. For carrying your weight. Yeah. Exactly. Got it. It was ruthless, man. Yeah, that's not fair. <laughs> but, I mean, I see, I see it, but it, it also gives people incentive to get better. Yeah. You know? So I, I don't know. There's probably labor laws against this. I'm sure that we're oh, talking about. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that everything that we yeah. did there wasn't right. Yeah. With the law, but right. this is the way it was, and yeah. it, this is what pushed me to have any sort of like a, a good baseline because this is before culinary school. Yeah. Uh, like knife skills, you paired up with somebody and you pushed they clocked you it's seven minutes for a case of zucchini move yeah you go over tips gone okay and it's a very intricate system they have it was, it was <laughs> insanely intricate and, and methodical and and high pressure mm. you know we kept record of how many people you cooked tonight so table seats between eight and twelve mm-hmm. end of the night we would sit down and we would manually tally everybody yeah if you're not cooking in this like within 10 of everybody else if you're slowing behind them Tip stock. Yeah. You can't cut a case of zucchini in seven minutes. Tip stock. Yeah. What were the biggest lessons you learned during this experience? Because you were here four years at yeah. Yamato, right? Four years, a big a big chunk of your career. Um, what were the biggest lessons that they, in, they, they were instilled in you in this time as far as what it takes to be successful in this industry? Efficiency. Mm. You know, everybody talks about how can you be more efficient? How can you move with a sense of purpose? Mm-hmm. That was like quintessential you better move with purpose give me specific examples of how you can increase your efficiency in the kitchen i mean it, it's small things like especially there it was it's creative ways you know put a bus bin up on the edge of a table slide your cutting board over a little bit you're chopping mushrooms you constantly are scraping you're not you know chopping something picking it up moving it over it constantly was cutting. it was it was always something every move you made had a reason yeah yeah. Listening to you talk, you reminded me of Leo Holtzman, who I just recently had on the show. And uh, the first time I had him on the show, we, I've actually, I reconnected with him when I was here in town. Uh, before he got into the world of restaurants, he was pursuing a career in, uh, to become a magician. Ma- magic guy. What's the word? Magician? The, magician. Thank you. Magician. Wizard? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted to get into the world of magic and, and perform shows. And uh, that was the world he came up in. And he was so blown away about what learning that world of efficiency and hand motions. Cause a lot of what it takes to be a magician is just sleight of hand. So like you, like you have what they call pocket control or something like that. Pocket, um, it's essentially mise en place for all of your gadgets and the funny things. Like everything has a place. Hmm. So like when you're moving your hand, you're grabbing something in it, but it's like, it's so efficient that unless you're really paying attention, you don't know what's happening. And like, and there's so many, he, he's like, I learned so much about that. Um, that that magic, and I implement, I implemented it in becoming a bartender. So like all these like little things, these tricks you use, like my my mise en place for like a, a being a bartender is like little little things, and it's about movement. Is what he's saying. Like the 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 little like the the least amount of movement you can do to get something done is more efficient, right? So it's it's like a little stuff like where's the low boy, right? Like it's literally below me. I don't have to step anywhere. I just reach down. Like little things like that. Well, what else? I mean, cooking on the the hibachi tables. There's an efficiency there because, so if you look at these old school burner tables, it was one like candy stove burner beneath a giant steel plate. So you'd have that. And depending on where you are on the table, that's your on and off or your medium heat. Yeah. You put it in the middle, it's burning. You put it out to the outside and you can touch. Yeah. It's fine. So learning how to, to 
cook very quickly was knowing how to move things around and control your heat without ever turning off the, uh, the, yeah. the stove. Yeah. And that translates into you cooking more people a night. Yeah. Which means, you know, you're not going to lose out on your tips. Yeah. I mean, so when you're designing a restaurant, if you're listening to this, like ask yourself, like, how can I reduce the amount of movement? How can I reduce the amount of footsteps? How can I like literally the shortest distance between objects and everything you do? And it's constantly improving. Like, cause you're constantly going to see ways to do it better. And like, teach your people to like think like this too right like how if i'm if, if you've discovered a way to do something better let us know that's the new standard yeah right? and that seems like that's kind of what was going on here at this japanese steakhouse yeah. but that's also kaizen that's japanese culture yeah 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 uh what else do they teach you <laughs> so same guy i said do or do not yeah His name's kazu kazu you know we we clean the hoods because there's a hood above each table we had 14 tables you know everybody once a month would pitch in and we would stay there later on saturdays we would all break them down every night after we all got done i would see him get up on the tables and he would grab windex and he would polish one hood a night by himself wow you know the first two years you look at him like man he's wasting his time what is he doing and you know two years later i'm at four years and it's like i know exactly what he's doing and i'm up there with him what is it it's just the love and the care because yeah. you know you know after three weeks there's some grease dripping down at the hood. This yeah. is this is a Michelin star restaurant. Yeah, it's it's just caring. Yeah, it's just caring, man. But also, I think it's a and I agree. Like you don't, as an owner, you don't want to do all the busy work. That's not the best use of your time, right? As the owner, but at the same time, making that time to do one thing every day that shows your team that I'm willing to do the same dirty work that you're willing to do will shut everybody up forever. Because there's no bitching, no complaining that you're not willing to do this work. <laughs> you know, like you as the owner, you're up there with me. It's a, such a little gesture. It's more than just cleaning the hood. You're doing something else. What are you doing? No, you're, you're leading from the front of the pack, man. Exactly. I mean, pulling. That's, that's truly what separates like good operators that retain people. Mm. Like nobody wants to work from, for the guy who doesn't actually do anything, walks around to the clipboard. It's, it's the guy doing the little things, the guy picking up a piece of trash off the ground after everything's clean. Yeah. And walking around and making sure it's right. Yeah. So at what point did you start to get to 100% tips? Like how long did it take, take you to go from 50 to 100%? It took me about six months, man. Yeah. And, you know, after me being there four years, I was the first white sous chef they ever had. I was given like a set of knives that the, the head chef flew back to Japan and brought them back for me. And wow. it's like when he promoted me, he's like, here you go. Wow. That's a cool thing to do for somebody, man. Yeah. It's I still got them. I still use them. That's pretty cool. Yeah, because me and him have the same problem. We shake when we we cut. Okay. So he had a very very long chef's knife in comparison to anything you see in the industry. And he explained to me, he's like, you know, you have the same problem as me. So tuck your arm into your body when you cut. Yeah. Just use the long knife. It'll reach. Yeah. And it works. So like you use your body to anchor, and then it gives you more extension. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. How long is it? I'm curious. We're talking like twelve inches. Yeah. So it's a it's a twelve inch chef's knife. Damn. Yeah, that's badass. Yeah, it's it's a sword. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the Japanese culture, so I'm curious. What other Japanese um, schools of thought did did you pick up just being in this this environment for four years? You know, it, it never delved far into that. Was, we weren't cooking Japanese food. We were cooking, you know, American Japanese food at best. Uh, it was just being around like this guy Kazu. Every every little thing he did, like was so meaningful and everybody else kind of dogged him out all the time because there's there's this weird unison of, of two head chefs there 
One was a Korean guy named Park. Yeah. Who was like a very good looking guy. Yeah. And was very, very good, but had this like, I don't care attitude. And the other was kind of the ugly Japanese guy, Park, <laughs> or uh, Kazu, who cared more than anybody could ever care. Yeah. So, you know, I started with one and I gravitated towards the other. So you started with one, meaning? I started with Park, the okay. Korean guy. Yes. Yeah. He loved going out drinking. Uh, you yeah. know, I was 20 years old. Yeah. We go through that phase. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I moved over to the other side. So moving to the other side, how did, it, how did you start to evolve as a chef when you started to move to the other side? So these guys have been Japanese cooking in front of you chefs their whole lives. Yeah. Uh, Park cared very much about the show and cared all about that. Kazu was very much a chef's chef. He cared about food. Mm-hmm. And it eventually hit a point where it's like, I really hate doing onion volcanoes for children, but I really love this cooking thing and I love food. Yeah. And that, that was the breaking point for me. And, you know, I asked his advice and he's like, go to school. Mm. So I've never worked in an American restaurant. I didn't know what a nine pan was, a six pan was, but I've been in the industry for nine, nine ten years at this point. Yeah. 14 to 19? Yeah. Or no, no, 14. Well, no, you were at 24 uh, at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's when I decided to go to school. Cool. Where'd you go? The Art Institute of Jacksonville, very okay. prestigious. Well, I mean, there's something to be said about one. I I don't think it's. I personally don't think it's worth going to a CIA. It's not worth going to school at all. Yeah, but especially <laughs> like so, like if you want to go get that experience, like don't think that making it to a school like that is going to be a make or break situation. I, I, but I also think it takes some some tenure to realize that when you're older, when you're 24 years old, you're like, I don't want to go spend thirty thousand dollars or more to go get an experience in New York City at this at this fancy school that everyone knows go stay local stretch your dollar network right like what did you get out of that experience you end up going to school right do you regret it yeah you do absolutely regret it. well any experience in life has beneficial takeaways yeah even though i'm still forty thousand dollars in debt uh you know when i graduated i had a, a chef at the school I'm like what do i do now he's like do what you should have done before you came here go stage at the best restaurant that interests you. Any foot, you, you, in any door, you can get your foot in. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So I took his advice and I'm like, well, where should I go? He's like, well, based off of what I know you like to cook, you should go to Bennu in San Francisco. Bennu? Bennu. Uh, Bennu. That's um, Corey Thomas Lee. Keller's uh, prodigy, right? Yeah, yeah, Corey Lee. Yeah. And like, they didn't have their third star yet. It was, it was pretty up and coming still. Yeah. Uh, so I did it. You know, I, I had made a lot of money as a Japanese cook in front of your chef and had a lot of material things and I wasn't very happy. So I graduated school and I sold everything I owned and I moved to San Francisco without knowing anybody and got the stage there. How long were you there? I was there for two months. So you sold everything that you own for a two-month experience? No, 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 no. I, I planned on, on living and working in the area and I lived there for about a year. Okay. Uh, but I just didn't jive with it, man. San Francisco wasn't my city to live in. It's, it's a great city to visit. Yeah. What, wasn't about, what was it about that city that wasn't for you? Like I said, I moved there with no friends. I, I moved into a 10 by 10 room on top of a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown that, you know, everybody on the floor shared two toilets and a shower. Awesome. I prepaid six <laughs> months rent up front. Just wanted to make sure I was stable when I got there. And, you know, it just, it just didn't work out. I started yeah. drinking more than I ever had and was miserable. So at this point, I call up my best friend. He's graduating from college right now. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, what are you doing? It's like, I'm going to move to Denver. Why? I don't know. I want to go to Denver. Yeah. Cool. Flew back, hopped in his car, moved to Denver. Okay. So 
did you learn anything of this this two month stage? Was there like a, a moment <laughs> for you, or like any like cultural pieces of how he ran his restaurant? You knew what a hotel pan was after school too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I learned more in two months there than I did in you know two and a half years at school. Oh, really? Absolutely. What were the biggest lessons you learned? Not so much around food. Not so much around food. But what did you learn about the level of operating a kitchen at this standard? It was all organization, man. It was the same efficiencies, but not done in such a low-level way. I, I hate to say it was low-level in my, my other Japanese steakhouses that I'd worked at, but it was, man. We didn't have six pans. We repurposed every fish flat that we got. Like, we didn't buy anything. Everything was secondhand. Everything... Well, efficiency isn't just time, but it's also cost. Yeah, definitely. You know, that place was efficient in a very different way yeah. than Bennu was. And you get into Bennu, and it's like, I've never worked with a, with a recipe that's all in grams. And it's very intelligent. Now I don't got to get cups and tablespoons and this and that. Yeah. So it's every day when I walked in, you know, you get banged up in places like that. And every day you learn something. You, were, you weren't just, you were there for six months, right? You weren't just at Bennu. Am I saying that right? No. So I, I worked at a, a small Japanese place called Nombe okay. in the Mission District. It wasn't great. It was enough to pay the bills. Yeah. Uh, well, didn't enjoy myself. Let's say that. So San Francisco wasn't your city. Nah. <laughs> but you did learn some great, great lessons. Definitely. Uh, uh, efficiency. Um, but what, paint that picture of what efficiency was in this experience. Though. Like, what was it about what they do? It wasn't as efficient as a Japanese steakhouse you got your start in. But like... What did they do that was a, that became a standard for you? Time management was the biggest thing there. Because, like, okay, you walk in the door, and then there's these different breakpoints throughout the day that the entire kitchen gets broken down, cleaned, reset, and you go, again, every day at noon, everybody got smoothies with all the fruit scraps. It was... Now, in retrospect, it was the best way to treat your employees to run at such a high level. Yeah. Because you, you also couldn't just let anybody in the door there. It's... The stakes are too high. Yeah. But people are treated very well there. You get a fantastic family meal every day. You know exactly what you're walking into every day. At the end of each night, you recap tomorrow. We have 63 guests on the book. There's these allergies coming in. Uh, you know, and when you're prepping the next day, you know, you prep out all of your tables. You know, a portion of noodles for a four top is in a deli with four portions in it. Yeah. So each table you grab, okay, two top, boom. So, so you're top, mise en place for each turn. It was amazing. That's awesome. Like, the level of focus and determination in that place to do everything perfect, I've never seen anything well, like it. The words that are coming through my mind are habit, routine. And like time, when you're saying time management, it's like, we get here, This it's blocking your time. Like, what are the most important things we do? This is That, that happens during this block. Mm-hmm. By this time, we're done with this, and we move to the next thing. And it's routine and habit. Okay, you know, your scraps, like the leftover bits and pieces of fruit like now that cuts now we don't have an expense for a family meal like that, that's every little thing you can do just to stretch the do, the the dollar but i'm sure it took me years and years of like one percent better every day to get to that point right i mean he was working through, again yeah yeah uh, he was working through the french laundry when they were redefining themselves constantly yeah so i think i think he was there for nine years and just imagine how much the progression was at the French Laundry from year one to year nine. And then imagine what he's doing now that he's on his own. And now he controls everything. He doesn't have to say what Thomas says or yeah. do anything that they do. Now it's under him. And I, I feel like 
I never worked at the French Laundry, and I can't comment on this, but I feel like it was a little bit more intense at Venue. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I've uh, the one thing that you just noticed, that I think, is really important that we, we talk about too, is the debrief. We we put a lot of emphasis in this industry about the brief, right? The go the pre mail, the the pre the the pre shift meeting where like here's who's coming in, but also like I think we should do the same thing at the end of the day. Like mm-hmm. we just a lot of times we'll we'll catch things in the act and we'll bring things up and we'll correct people in the moment. Uh, what, what what would the power be of being able to just put that off another hour and knowing that you're going to be able to bring that to the surface after everyone's left and you can have it in like a, a private setting, this conversation, right? Uh, but also reflecting like what went well today, what didn't go well. Like we don't do enough debriefing in this industry. I, I think that's a huge opportunity miss. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we do it with our chefs here and we have an end of night report that we send out nightly that just talks about each portion of the day. So my, my morning chef, he talks about receivables, which products are coming in correctly, what problems are we having with vendors? What time they're coming in? How can we talk to them and make things better? He fills out this portion before he leaves. My chef running the pass. This is what's wrong with our cooks. This is what's wrong, what we think is wrong with the front of house. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of liaison between all of that. You know, a sous chef running the pass might be a little disgruntled with the front of house. And I know what's going on up here because our kitchen split levels. Um, sometimes I have to be able to look at this information, digest it, and tell them you need to look at it from this perspective for the guest. This is why the front of house is doing it. Stop getting so upset about yeah. every little thing. Yeah. And that's every day, our yeah. debrief. That's another thing, too. Just like too often the front of house and the back of house are complete, treated as too, too much of a complete different thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a team effort. And I think being able to bring people together at a debrief and say, like, what worked? Like, what were your frustrations? Let's talk about it. Let's communicate here. Let's help each other understand why we do things the way we do things. And half the time is we just don't understand that person. We're not empathizing with the other side. Yeah. You know, and, like, and just, but pr- providing that opportunity to communicate, to to say this is why I asked for that or like, and like how, well, how can we do that better next time, right? Again, that, that creates opportunity for 1% better. Mm-hmm. So you're this this is also um, your experience. Why wasn't that on your resume? I'm surprised I didn't see that. Was it? Well, which thing? Benu? Benu, yeah. I think it's a three bottom. It's a stage. I'm not going to put that as like a headline, man. That's true. I feel, I, I feel like that's, people, that's fair. I, I'm yeah. not a big fan of people who like, I staged at a place for two months and you're going to base your career off of that. Well, I'm actually happy you're going <laughs> here because that's something that I think is really important. Like I saw 11 um, stops in the past uh, or was it nine stops I said in 11 years. You said there were a couple more. How do you find that bounce of... How like like what is the minimum you think you should give a company when you join them, and like how do you how do you find that balance of communicating transparently like this is what I'm looking like I want this to be a stage or the, I want this to be employment how do how do you walk that line is are there rules to that? I mean it depends on where you're at in your career, man. Yeah. Like if you're somebody that's going out to gain experience, I mean obviously I'm going to tell you to do everything to the maximum that you can do it. Yeah, the best you can do it. I mean I walked into Bindu wanting a job. Mm-hmm. And I fought very hard for a job, and I did not get a job. Yeah. Um, it's, it's all different levels. Did they tell you why you didn't get it? I know why I didn't get it, well, but we never talked about it. Oh, really? Why didn't you get it? <laughs> Are you willing to talk about it now? Yeah, man. Cause it, it's, it's a weird it's, Sorry, no, but I don't No, no. It's such, a, it's such a... You would think it's a minimal thing, but it was enough for me not to get hired. Okay. So, Chef Corey, you know, they're passes in the middle you have yeah. your cold section on this side your hot section on this side and you know he twists every jalong bao that goes out in that restaurant while he expos he's got a little wooden table behind him where the dough goes out and you know my last day there like i'd finally worked my way up to to be around him on the pass yeah and my job was to you know like i said four top yeah the dozer in the deli pull him out 
throw them out on the wooden table, and he'll he'll start twisting them. And there was a spoon bane with a little bit of water in it, and, you know, I, I put a spoon back in it, and a couple drops get on the table, and I didn't realize it, and I walk away, and, you know, mid-service, he says, stop. The kitchen halts. When he says something, you know, word of God. Yeah. Who did this? I'm honest. Say, hey, it's me. Okay. Resume service. Boom. Done. My last day there, he walks out, he hands me a sugar caddy, and he goes, thank you for your time. I mean... When you're some when you're that person, right, you have so many people coming to your door, right? You have the ability to be that selective. Yeah. Right? Um did you ever re- resent him or regret that moment and that was was that like how did you handle that? I feel like some people wouldn't handle that well. I mean I try not to be a person that dwells yeah. on things like that. Sorry, I'm resurfacing but, it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I I'm I'm okay now. At that time, like I said, I was very, very bad alcoholic. Yeah. Growing up in a college town was bad. Mm-hmm. So of course, what I do, I just went on a bender, man. Yeah. And do you think that had a lot to do with why you didn't like your time in San Francisco? Because that was your first experience, right? The two months there. Yeah. Uh, no, man, it wasn't that. It was, you know, I had I had an intention set to go yeah. work at this place. Yeah. It didn't happen. So it was just. I need to move on. Yeah. You know, I could have gone to Saison or any one of those, but that's what I wanted and I didn't get it. So, you know. Yeah. Kind of. When you're 24, 25 years old, this is like mm-hmm. probably one of your idols, right? And, and, and it ends like that. It can't feel good. No, man. Yeah. I, I was shook. So I left. I mean, that's how I felt when, when I was in the aviation industry and I, I spent five years, six years of my life working towards this goal of becoming a commercial pilot. And like, I realized, I mean, you are clearly meant to be on this path. I was never meant to be a commercial pilot, <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, you're like, you're like, Oh, it's, it sucks to not get what you want. You know, like when you, when you, if I was like, I just was on the wrong path. Um, but I mean, me, that'd be like me trying to go fly for like some rich person as like their corporate chef, but like with flying like a G six or something at the age of like 22 years old and getting the job and like, m- like missing like one, having to go around on a flight or something like that, missing my landing, having to go around like it's th- that's the equivalent. I wouldn't get the job because of that. Right. Yeah. So it's not quite the same, <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. So moving forward, like in your career, you, you ended up in Denver. Was that the next stop? Yeah. Yeah. So it's- this is what 2000, like um, this is after your time at Yamato. Yeah. So we're, we're talking like 2013, 2014, 2015 in that ballpark. I, I mean, if you look at my resume, it's on there. Yeah, I LinkedIn, don't. I have it right in front of me. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> my sense of time isn't great. Oh, I bet. It's, you've been a lot. And you're jumping all over the place. It's too. been a long life. I'll tell yeah. you that much. Yeah. <laughs> so where was the next major evolutionary point for you? From thinking about your career, thinking about perspective, people who did things differently but made you better? It was going into a hotel setting. Okay. So, you know, the Four Seasons in Denver had been open like a year, two years max at that time. And I was knocking on doors and I got in there and I knew nothing about how, how hotels operated. And then went in there and the chef of the whole hotel looked at me. He's like, you're, you're very overqualified for the only thing that I have open. I'm like, well, I just moved across the country twice. I need anything I can get. So I started off as a GM cook there, Garmage. And within six months, I was at the top yeah but what's six months in the grand scheme of things nothing man yeah and i think people are so like we we have a tendency to be surface level in the moment we see what like the the sticker value of something like the face value of something and we go oh i'm i'm way above this mm-hmm. right but sometimes you have to be willing to step back look i just got done working for free in the most expensive city in the world uh, in america at yeah that anything time. was a move up yeah man <laughs> garbage cook i'm actually getting paid let's do this yeah but six months it took you to move up like wh- where did you end up with the four seasons uh, I left there as their lead line cook. You were there for a year and a half. No, I was yeah. there for longer. Longer? Yeah. Okay. I was there for almost three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I climbed all over that place. Yeah. You know, 
when somebody called out in banquets, I was there. Somebody called out in the pastry shop. If my job was to scoop cookie dough, I would do it. Yeah. I was so immersed in that place, like, loved it. But then at the same time, like, not on my resume, I had part-time jobs outside of there. Like, I was working, like, 100 hours a week for that entire span of my life while drinking, you know, 40 hours a week. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you got through it. Yeah. Um, So... What were the biggest differences for you, like as far as like how to do things that you think, in, in your perspective, made you a better person or a better chef? A better chef. Uh, so the chef of this Four Seasons had been with the Four Seasons for like twenty five years at this point. It's a guy named Simon Purvis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy was very good at dealing with people because I was not an easy person to deal with this at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. I was very egotistical. Uh, I was very like all over the place, like with my emotions. Give me an example of like how that, like a time where that hurt you. I know I'm making you get vulnerable right now, but I think it's important to like paint that picture. Uh, so, I mean, chefs came and went there enough in a three year period where I felt like I deserved a sous chef position. Yeah. Uh, had a company party, uh, at a park, you know, it was split between morning people went and, in the afternoon afternoon people went in the morning i got the day off i showed up with a handle of jameson blacked out knocked a tooth out which one did you get it replaced it's nice they did a great job well (laughs) see the thing was is i had already chipped it okay i was already getting replaced and you know i was all drunk and they're Mm -hmm. like your tooth fell out it's like it's cool i'm getting replaced tomorrow they're like oh he's (laughs) such a (laughs) he's such a drunk he doesn't know what he's talking about (laughs) sure enough i showed up two days later after my other day off and i had a new tooth and they're, they're like how did you get that so quick? I'm like, I, it was already, wob- you. It was already <laughs> wobbly. You guys just didn't believe me. But, you know, like that coupled by my inability to, to deal with other people who weren't as good around me, mm-hmm. you know, because I just came out of working and you know, what got a third Michelin star that year. You know, I, I stodged there for two months. I'm great. Mm. So I had that attitude and I treated other cooks around me who weren't as good very poorly. And that that's why you don't move up because you don't deal with people well and who who expects somebody to move into a management position and treat other people well when you act like that yeah so i management today in the modern age isn't about keeping people in order as much as it's about coaching and leading and building people up it took me a long time to learn that so when did you learn that what what took you learning what what did it take for you to learn that when did you learn that is that later in life yeah yeah i mean it it wasn't until wasn't until i got sober and and really started dealing with my own emotion emotions that i could deal with other people's emotions okay um when did you get sober when was that in your journey it was about four years ago four years Uh, ago it was right before i moved here to miami okay let's save that then so um you're with the four seasons for about two years you said and more three years Yeah, a little over two years almost three um where were you when you when you left there uh as far as like how far up the ladder did you get uh like uh cdp lead line cook whatever you want to call it there at this point did you were you aware that you were you were you were you were you where you wanted to be? Not at all. You know, were you aware of why you weren't there yet? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm very intelligent. I'm just, at this point, I'm where just you in, were in the hindsight, <laughs> like you're you're aware of it, right? But in the moment, were you aware of it? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very self-aware. Yeah, I'm just extremely self-deprecating. I'm a hard interview, time. man. I ask questions. I get personal. You're no. doing a great job, dude. I'm an open it. book. Yeah, Anything you want to ask like me, it. like that's why I'm that's why I'm going there. I'll spill it, man. Yeah, thank you. I'm always very self-aware. Yeah, but in the moment like chemically emotionally like it just overrides and i just did stupid 
yeah. shit at that you're time. You're young. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do dumb stuff when we're young, too. Exactly. So um, you're, this is also your first experience in the hotel, right? In yeah. The, in yeah. the world of hotels. What, in your mind, like, did you pull anything from that world that you leverage in restaurants today that you think is better? Was it mostly catering stuff that you think probably? Uh, well, I, I mainly worked in the restaurant there, and that restaurant was extremely high volume. You know, 400 covers a night, and we'd do it with six six cooks. It was a steakhouse. Wow. It was based off of Michael Mina model. You know, they had bourbon steak at in D.C. at the Four Seasons, and then Four Seasons was smart enough to say, I don't want to pay him the licensing fee, so they started opening up Cut, which is, kitchens were laid out almost identical. Yeah. Same menus, So they basically. license out to, to learn how to do it. And then we figured this out, like, we're going to rebrand it. Yeah, yeah, we've got a cut here in Miami. They have a cut in Denver. And, like, so working there, like, I got real chops as a cook there, working yeah. on a line. Because you're not going to get that at a really fine dining restaurant. It's, it's too methodical there. Yeah. You're not going to learn how to dance there proper. Yeah. You learn when you don't have anybody to rely on, like, what you need to do to, to crush a 600 cover week or day, weekend, night. Like, it was intense. So how did you evolve as a chef? You said you learned what you need to do, but like, what is that? How does that translate? It's, it's a different kind of efficiency every time, yeah. man. It, it all it all boils down to efficiency, whether it's fiscal efficiency, your day-to-day movement efficiency, how, how to deal with people efficiently. Yeah. Okay. Let's it's, get into that. How do you deal with people efficiently? I think that comes later. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, when I'm thinking hotel, when I'm thinking four seasons, I'm thinking volume, right? So you learn how to cook. These other restaurants, much smaller yeah. in comparison, right? Yeah. Efficiency. Now you're thinking like units of work. Mm-hmm. I'm going through these motions. I can go through these motions and do it a lot at once or a little at once. And I feel like when you get into the world of hotels, it's about how can I do as much as possible with as little effort as possible. Exactly. Uh, is that? I mean, correct me if, if, if I'm swinging and missing. I have never worked in a hotel in a kitchen before. No, but what I know about the world of hotels it's it's about volume because you're serving a lot of people constantly yeah yeah definitely especially in banquets like i said each each area of the hotel you're gonna learn something different uh i guess my biggest takeaway from the four seasons was more philosophical so if you ever heard of isidore sharp the guy started the four seasons and, and wrote a very good book uh like his, his goal was never say no to a guest and now like i'm comprehending hospitality later on down the line and I try to never say no to a guest. If I guess once a fillet well done, hammered out, like so many people get so upset about that. Why? They're paying you to do it. Like I don't understand. So at this point in my career, like that's what I took away from the four seasons. Is this like I will do anything for you. Yeah. But you're gonna pay me for it. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> honestly, like and that's one like the way I describe hospitality, how do you know if you're being hospitable? How do you know if you're going above and beyond what's expected? If somebody asks you to, to do something and you feel like this is gonna be a huge inconvenience for me to actually do, that feeling of inconvenience is likely gonna be received as hospitality. Because mm-hmm. you're going above and beyond to do the unexpected. You're going out of your way to convenience somebody else. Right. And I feel like, so if you ever get that feeling of like, oh, the answer is no, but because this is going to be too much of an inconvenience, the answer should be yes, because this is how we're going to actually make an impression. Uh, so like, how do you like, so what's that inner dialogue for you? Like, what's that like for you when like you get that moment of like, fuck, okay, I don't want to do this, but okay. That feeling, the older I get, just dissipates. Okay. I, I'm not upset to do stuff anymore. What's worse for me is dealing with the cook who gets upset about it. Mm. Like, the cook 
bitching and moaning about having to cook a fillet well done. I'm like, what do you care? You're not eating the fillet. Yeah. What are you mad that it's going to take an extra six minutes? Yeah. Like, what is so bad about what you're having to do that you are getting emotionally this worked up? Yeah. For somebody who's going to pay your salary. Yeah. And it's also, I think, two perspective is everything. Like, is this an inconvenience or is this an opportunity? Is this an opportunity to, to, to step outside of the routine, mm-hmm. to, to show people what I got and what we can do to go the extra mile, to, to be willing to be inconvenienced for your convenience? Mm-hmm. Like, that just translates so well. And I think, but people just don't see it that way. They, they feel the, the feeling of inconvenience, of frustration, of anger, and that, that emotion swells. But it, you can literally snip that emotion in the moment and go, wait, this is a good thing. Mm-hmm we can shine in this moment. It's writing the end of the story, as Danny Meyer would say. Mm-hmm. In a way, because it's more about correcting mistakes, writing the end of the story. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so does it make sense to move on from this experience? Like, wh- where was the next point for you in your journey to where you are today? To, that, like, really w- was an evolutionary point for you in your career? So, I got tired of living in Denver. I miss my family. My whole family's here in Florida. Uh, by this time, they had largely moved all to Jacksonville. Um, so I looked at moving back there and it's like, I can't have the career that I want there. Uh, I've worked for these big chefs. I've worked for these big hotels and that's just not there. Uh, this guy, Kevin Spraga had just gotten off the top chef winning season seven. I had worked for another person off of season seven and we all kind of got into contact and, you know, I tried out for my, my first sous chef position with him to open this restaurant Spraga and company and I got it and moved back to Jacksonville and the guy he got to run it is this guy Justin Petrus uh, they moved everybody down from Philadelphia because that's where they were based out of and you know I, I, I got what I like to think of as my fourth mentor in life and this guy is the guy who was this Spraga? no it wasn't Spraga oh, yeah. but this is the, the guy he got to run it Justin Petrus uh, and he largely I consider the mentor that taught me how to have a, a personal style in cooking he, so, so he taught you. So his mentorship was more in your approach to food, not so much your approach to run a kitchen or restaurant. Yeah, I don't think he was particularly great at that. And I, oh. I hope that he never hears that because <laughs> uh, he's a weird dude, man. And his food, when I had it, I thought it was so delicious and it was so strange, and I loved it. And I didn't know why that I had to spend the time with him and learn it. And he was like anti-French cooking. Like, why are we doing something that a guy 150 years ago wrote a book about? You know, we've got cell phones, we've got iPads, start cooking like it. Yeah. And he just got real weird with it. And that was his saying, get weird with it. Well, for the longest time, I, like, I kind of I kind of marched that beat, too. Like, we let, like, the French culture of food kind of dictate what good food was. And it was about how close to the standard is it, mm-hmm. right? How close to, like, the way it's supposed to be is this. But who's who? who decides what's good? Well, at this point in time, I did. And the consumer, really, <laughs> at the end of the day, the people who are giving you the money are deciding what's good. Yeah, but, but there's also something that you want to do, because this is a creative outlet as yeah, well. But, and, well, I was going to say, the juxtaposition is also good. Mm-hmm. Standing out is also good. So, like I said, this guy just cooked weird. And he was really focused on wood fire cooking. And never in my life had I experienced wood fire cooking in this way. Cause you know, we had a wood fire grill at the four seasons it was one of those deep Texas pit grills that cranked up and down and we grilled steaks on it. And that was it. This guy used wood fire cooking in so many different ways that I had never seen before that I was blown away. And that's when I started developing a personal style to, mm. to what I wanted to do. Yeah. 
you're regurgitating other people's stuff. Yeah. This guy gave me like a, a paintbrush and a palette and said, go for it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what the first 10 years of your career should be, I feel like. Your first 10 years is learning the basics, getting perspective, learning the fundamentals, the tools you need to, to get to that next place, right? Mm-hmm. But once you get those basics, then you, you have this arsenal of tools. And now you get to like veer away from the, the standards and the basics and use different techniques in different verticals, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where creativity comes in. It's, it's the combined, it's the, the, the culmination, the combination of all these different experiences through your lens, through your outlet into something that you're interested in, right? Mm-hmm. So for you, was that, was that live fire cooking? Yeah, man. Like, like I said, I'd worked on a wood fire grill before, but then I worked for this guy and I really Give me some examples of some crazy shit he was doing. I mean, like, this is before, like, it was widely publicized that, like, I don't know, Grant Atkins at Linea was, like, taking a burning log and steeping it into cream to make, you know, ice cream with. It was things like that. Yeah. You know, we were taking embers out and then, like, cryovacking, uh, like, whiskey with it and to give it, like, extra smoke. It was... Would you put it through a filter after, or would you have all those, like, little shards? No, we would filter it, but it would just be, like, so smoky. Yeah. Uh, you know, we would get a zucchini in, we'd break the zucchini down three different ways. All of the guts we'd throw into a mesh basket because like grills by DeMont hadn't given us these nice yeah. grilling baskets. I almost got point. one of those baskets. They gave me one of the hand grills. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I, I've got them downstairs. Yeah, dude. <laughs> He's like, you can have a basket or you can have a hand grill. Yeah. I was like, give me that hand grill. But the basket's still pretty awesome. Yeah. So we were taking like the seeds from zucchini and just like blasting them and then charring that. That's the puree. And then we're going to grill this, the skins and use them a different way and like there'd just be so many different layers to his cooking and just like every time I thought something was burned he'd be like perfect that's flavor that's great yeah good it's job like, it's like people that pull a pizza out of the oven too soon it's like what are you doing like all that that char is like that's the good stuff yeah you know? and this is like pre-chef's table Francis Malman hadn't buried a potato and ash on TV yet <laughs> and he, we were doing this stuff yeah. and it was it was beautiful to me yeah i think we have to give a little nod to our friends over at girls by demont because technically our listeners don't know who the, these people are yet <laughs> True. because uh so girls by demont that's how we found you they referred us to you they said you gotta go talk to ian while you're over in miami mm-hmm. awesome guy what he's doing over there they know the market really well because they have grills that they make uh live fire grills that they the best chefs the best restaurants in the countries in the country has these grills mm-hmm. in them we actually got them on the show we recorded but we weren't able to publish the show because we ran into like they lost power. Basically, is what <laughs> happened. Like just before the interview, and I was like, and they had their their little daughter, beautiful little girl, was with us. And she, but she was just like, she's a little girl, like I think three or four years old. Obviously, a distraction for them, right? So I was like, yeah. I'm gonna come back to, to to Atlanta. We're gonna do this right the next time around. We're gonna do it with power so we can see everything. But that's how we found you, um, awesome people, and they make amazing grills. By the way, if you guys, if you're listening to this and you have a vision for a restaurant that's using live fire, check out Girls by Demont. Awesome people. Sorry, I just want to paint that picture for the listeners. No, they deserve it. Chris yeah, is the best. Amazing people. American. They have the true American story too. Yeah. Uh, was it Denmark? Yeah, I believe yeah. so. It's one of the most hyper intelligent people I've ever oh, met. So cool. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry for that derailment. No, nah, it's cool. So I got my paintbrushes there, so to say, and uh, well, after a couple years, I. I couldn't take jacksonville anymore that restaurant closed down within nine months because of some partner issues wasn't happy there and decided to move down this way uh i worked in a, in a yacht club that's not on my resume yeah. and that was a like a 
horrific experience for me. I ended up marrying the owner's daughter and then got divorced. And, (laughs) you know, that led to even more drinking, which which when we divorced, that's when I, you know, got sober. And so this is for this is before uh, Desco. No, I went through old Desco. I just don't consider that a a pinnacle part of my career. Uh, So, so 2018, you're with you're at Brava. Or yeah, Bravo by Brad Kilgore. So yeah, yeah, that's what I moved down to Miami to do. I got sober okay. and I picked the chef. Well, but- let, there's a couple things you mentioned that I want to kind of hover over real quick. Um, you mentioned issues with partners that fell apart. Without mentioning names, what's the underlying lesson about partnership from that experience that you witnessed? That's a lesson for us. You know, I was I was a sous chef at that time. Yeah. I don't have the information to comment on that directly for that specific place. Yeah. But I mean, read your contracts, man. That's the <laughs> read your Partners, contracts. Partnership agreements. Yeah, so huge, and yeah. it's something that comes up a lot on the show. So whenever I hear something like a partnership not working out, I want to hear about what we learned from that experience. I mean, because you know? it's 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 so like read your contracts. Obviously, an awesome lesson. But keep going. I mean, specifically that instance was the people who developed this large plaza that the restaurant was in were the main backers behind it. Uh, I mean, dealing with landlords is tough in this industry as it is. Mm-hmm. Dealing with landlords that own most of your actual restaurant is even worse. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Yeah. So you lose control, basically. Like, yeah. So what, what is the key? What's the line in the contract that you should be looking for to avoid this situation? If you, if you know the answer to that. I, I don't, man. Like okay. everything is so situational. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah. There's not one specific thing. But I mean, just be clear on what the partnership is. Are you are you a silent partner? Are you just money? If they say yes, get that in writing. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a big part of it. That, that's also the way you structure your your legal entities, though, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just starting an LLC and doing a split on it's not going to protect you. Yeah. And I do want to talk about your sobriety too. Cause I think if, if are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah. Yeah. Because open, open I think, book, like I said, because this industry, man, it's no secret that it, like alcoholism we're plagued. You yeah. know, I think this people that are drawn to this industry tend to be more outgoing, more extroverted, like to go out, have a good time, party, we socialize. I think people who have a, some of those traits and characteristics can kind of get sucked in to that world of alcoholism alcoholism a little bit easier I, I see myself as being somebody who needs to be careful around alcohol because <laughs> i can see my it runs in my family like i i still drink to this day but i know that after that after that fourth drink like i i, I will not let myself drink more that's good you know? man. um but i scare myself like especially when i was earlier so like i i i like to talk about this stuff too because i think i just think it's important that we communicate that the finding that balance so what what happened for you where you said i i have to get sober Ah, man, it, it's a lot. You know, I had tried to get sober a couple of times when I was in Jacksonville and then moving down because I, I, I moved to Boca before I actually came down in here. So Boca Raton and, you know, I, I slowly developed a, a significant cocaine habit. Okay. Um, so That's I something could, I've only done five times in my life. Oh. And I can see how that could become a habit. It's like Adderall, man. It's it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you get off of work at, you know, 11, 12, 1, like your blood's pumping. You just yeah. you just did a hard shift. You start drinking, and then you know once you start drinking, your your decision making goes down, and that's when you start doing other things. Yeah. Oh, why not? And it's then here. all of a sudden, the other <laughs> things become more prevalent than the actual drinking. So you know, I didn't stop drinking because I I was so bad of a drunk that. But I have a feeling that if I ever drank again, I would immediately go back and do cocaine, and that's the worst. What was what was made? What makes the cocaine, uh, I guess, exponentially worse. What is it about that that makes it worse? I mean, 
you know, you can barely regulate your emotions when you're drunk. You're so hyped up on cocaine, you know. Yeah. It's five in the morning and you start calling your best friends to vent to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like about how you feel bad about something that happened a decade ago. Like, right. You just so, do dumb things. So literally what happens when you drink, the first thing that happens is your frontal, your prefrontal cortex starts to slowly go offline. And that's the thing that literally controls your uh, ability to override emotion. Mm-hmm. So when that thing goes offline, it also like helps you. It, it, it's like it's it's the executive suite of your brain. Mm-hmm. It, it calls the shots. So it's like basically what happens is the rational part of your brain goes, "Good night. I'm going home for the night." When you start drinking, and then the rest of your brain's like, "Boss is gone. Let's have a good time. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's get emotional. Let's do stupid shit." So when you take away that 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 corporate that 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 part of your brain that regulates emotion, and then you jack up energy with like a, a, an upper like you it's like a one two like dangerous combination yeah especially when you know i could go 48 hours like let's go <laughs> <laughs> so i can see why that would be dangerous so now you're not you're not thinking emotionally like well right no. and you're jacking yourself up and you're calling people resurfacing things from like you're saying like create it's, it's a dangerous combination yeah it was terrible so was there a moment usually when people make this choice to go to get right there's something that happens oh yeah i almost killed myself oh wow man oh yeah it was bad so i'd flipped a car i got fired from my job jesus i was working as a fry cook at a seafood shack and with all this experience this is like all within a month period yeah dude i had a i had a wife who i got married in iceland to a bulgarian russian girl went on our honeymoon in cuba and i hadn't seen her in almost a year because she couldn't get in the country so I'm dealing with, like, not seeing this girl, dealing with all of this stuff, and then, you know, like, I got to pay rent. I love to gamble, too. So let's just compound it all. <laughs> Go to the casino, blow all my money. Yeah. I was like, I don't really remember what happened. I just remember it kind of coming, too, on, uh, on the top of a parking garage, like, standing on the edge. And uh, I had to text with my wife, like, are you going to be okay without me? She responded, No. So I got off the ledge and went to an AA meeting. Man. What year was this? Four years ago. That's amazing, man. Good for you. Congratulations for, you know, not everybody can can make that pivot. Yeah. You know, can get right. So good for you. And, like, part of the, what we're here to do is to inspire the industry. And I know there's so many people out there that are probably dealing with what you went through, right? So hearing that it's over, you can overcome it. Right. So like what was the narrative for you that helped you overcome this? I was going to die if I didn't. Yeah. It was very blatant. Like I was going to die and I was probably going to kill myself Mm. or I was going to kill other people because I I had a bad like drinking and driving problem. Yeah. Uh, And I've I've got a sister who's she's turning 10 years sober this year. So this is it's a thing that's common in my family. Well, it generally is genetic. Yeah. Yeah. So she helped me, man. Like, my biggest advocate is my older sister. Was she your sponsor? No, you can't do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's not, not good. I don't know the rules. No, like, uh, I tried to get sober three times, and this is the third time. And I know it's weird to talk about this, because technically you're not supposed to talk about... No, the, I'm cool. Okay. Let it all out. Like, if, well, they, if this can help somebody, one person, yeah. if they hear it and it helps them, it's worth it. Got it. I love that. So, I mean, that's four years ago, man. And, like... And like this is like, I think a testament to what happens when you clean up your shit and you get a focus and you, and you make shit happen. You can, you can achieve a really great, great things like where you are today, what you're doing today. Like, would you be here today if you were still drinking? No, 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 not at yeah. all. 
So I think now is a great time to take a break to thank our sponsors. We're going to talk about the last four years and how you achieved this goal or this uh, place where you are as the executive chef of, uh, I almost said Spraga. <laughs> Fable. Fable, thank you very much. Uh, it's going to be great. I have a good feeling. It's going to be good. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Zinch. When you own a restaurant, a lot can happen suddenly, and the unexpected can be expensive. When you're short-staffed during the busy season, you can't delay hiring, and the slower seasons still come with bills to pay. When an appliance breaks down or new locations need more equipment, you have to work fast to keep the kitchen running smoothly. You don't have time to wait around for the traditional loan process to get the cash you need. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Zinch, a direct lender that gets businesses like yours. Since 2004, Zinch has made the financing process for small and medium-sized business fast, flexible, and inclusive with easy-to-understand solutions. If your restaurant is generating over $10,000 in monthly revenue and has been in business for over six months, Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days, so much faster than the traditional lenders. To apply, just fill out a simple application form and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements. It's that easy. No drawn out paperwork to keep track of and no lengthy waiting to see if you qualify. You'll get a response from Zinch in 24 hours. Plus, Zinch's specialists are just a phone call away. They'll guide you every step of the way to help you choose the terms that best fit your business's needs. Save yourself the stress of financing through a bank. Apply for Zinch today. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners. A value of $250. Go to finance thatworks.com to get pre-qualified and see how much financing you could get with Zinch. Don't wait. Go to financingthatworks.com today. Loans made or arranged pursuant to California Finance Lenders Law License. We're back. And uh, where, where does it make sense? So you, you, you choose to get straight. You, you, you painted that picture of what low looked like for you. Mm-hmm. right? And you said, I need to, you know, I need to choose a new direction. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your life start to change? Like when did things start to turn around for you? So... You know, I'm in AA. I'm still working as a fry cook. I'm like, all right. So, uh, do I want to stay in Florida? Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, you start you start setting little boundaries and goals for yourself. What do I want to do? How do I get there? I want to stay in Florida. I can't have a career outside of Miami because Florida's just not conducive to it. Maybe Orlando, but Orlando's accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I want to go to Miami. I'm in Boca at this point. It's a like 45-minute drive. Who do I want to work for? At the time, this guy Brad Kilgore was blowing up. Like, four times James Beard nominee. Like, actual nominee. Like, finalist. Got it. The guy was killing it. So, I messaged him on Instagram. Hey, I know you don't know me. I'm going to come run one of your restaurants. (laughs) Who the fuck are you? (laughs) Yeah. You replied, though. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I know you don't know me yet. I'm going to come run one of your restaurants. Yeah, it was very Bold. cocky of me to, yeah. to say uh but he was opening a restaurant called ember and it was all wood fire focus like i want to come run ember i can't where to get a chef for it so it's kind of the same as the four seasons like what can i get i know once i get in the door that i'm gonna outwork anybody because i'm i'm sober i don't have anything better to do i just got divorced i have nothing all i've got is what i'm gonna put into this job so he's like why don't you come uh come do a tasting for me at this restaurant called Bravo, which is in the ballet and opera house here that he was running. Don't meet him. Nothing. Come in one day, set up everything for my tasting. Next day, ready to fire. He walks in the door, says, hey, walks into the dining room, goes fire. 
don't talk to me at all. So I cook my food. At the end, he calls me out. He's like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like, hey, I'm Ian. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I was going to be wearing one of your restaurants. He's like, you want a job? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I want a job. It's like, like, you want to run this restaurant? It's very weird. It's in a ballet and opera house. You don't always open. You know, we do a lot of catering out of here. It's a different piece. Whatever, man. I'll take the job. And, you know, it just grew from there. I helped him at other restaurants because we worked and we're open from 5 to 7.30. Then the show starts. Close down. We do 150 covers. Like, very good food in a very short amount of time and then it's you know I'd get out and then I'd bounce over to Kaido or Ember or one of his other restaurants and help out there okay I was just eating it up taking in as much as I could constantly mm. uh, started doing very large caterings out of there like the NFL came to town the NFL Honors Awards you know 2,000 football players wow run that That's a lot of hungry people yeah like <laughs> it was a lot, eat of, a lot too. <laughs> a lot of really big challenges yeah. while, while running this restaurant running all the concessions and, and the both the ballet and the opera house uh, and the the musical stage that they have because it's two giant buildings. It's huge. Uh, we did the Democratic uh, debate that year. We did NFL Honors that year. Like It was a lot. Wow. So what did you eat? Would you say you evolved at this time beyond getting sober and redirecting your energy and your focus? I'm sure that helped, right? But yeah. You absolutely. don't realize how much energy goes into drinking and partying until you start doing it. You're like, oh, I have this free time now. Yeah. And energy. I don't feel hungover anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it all changed, man. Like, all of the things that I had learned from running the hotel and the, the banquet section just got applied to catering. Like, there were so many different facets to this job, like running a restaurant, running a banquet operation. Like, not a lot of people can do that job. It was very complex a lot of moving parts um and this weird history that i had was the perfect mishmash for it yeah yeah you definitely yeah you, you get that fine that ultra fine dining experience and, and passion you have the four season experience to be able to d- deliver that level at, with volume right which is comes out with the ballet and all the different uh, theater and different things you're doing um how did you manage it what was your system for, you said it, not everybody can manage it did you have a process a system for managing it No, I think that's why it worked for me because everything was so different all the time. It was a constantly evolving thing and we were getting busier all the time and every show was different. Every convention we had or whatever it might be was different. And like I said, I had just this chaos, this mishmash of experience that was perfect and I was so adaptable at it and I was so ingrained in my work at that time that like I was a monster like I went into that full force is there a specific lesson or new knowledge or anything that you garnered during this time that our listeners can benefit from uh, I mean specifically like it was such a weird operation that it sounded like it was like compared to the other parts of your life it sounds like a very positive part for you like a very good area it, good it time. Was. two years of solid work so so it was the point in time where like even though i was working under brad who was like kind of a huge success at this moment in time he let me do what i needed to do and and let me do it like largely just left me alone yeah well what'd you learn about brad and how he leads that benefited you 
that you you pull, you pull from his his approach to leadership. His approach to leadership was if you have somebody who can do the job very well, don't micromanage them. And he let me do it. But he always had like this all-seeing eye perspective of when he needed to step in, be like, "No, he did it." So from your perspective, when would he step in? Like what would what would it take for him to step in? So Brad had a very specific style of cooking. You know, he had a background from Alinea. He had a background from L2O with Lauren Gross. Uh, he had this this interesting approach to molecular food. So you see all this stuff coming out of Fran Adria and all this, and a lot of it just doesn't translate to restaurants all the time. He had this way of picking and choosing techniques that were very popular there and applying them so they didn't feel so nuts all the time. It wasn't so gimmicky all the time. You could actually have a good meal. Got it. So with the balance of you getting out of the way, so he, I'm not quite sure if I'm picking up the lesson. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> maybe rephrase it for me. Like I said, it wasn't so much of a lesson is it's like he knew when to step in and take like a dish that I was working on. He, he has one of the best palates that I've ever seen, like blows the doors off of sommeliers. So, and he would step in and be able to take a dish that I was working on and just suggest changes. Yeah. That would elevate it so well. Or is it changes to make it better or changes to make it more him on his brand? It was better. Okay. Because it wasn't so much of his brand that he let me do my thing. Like, yeah. He was largely supportive in just letting me run a restaurant. Yeah. And there were suggestions. Yeah. How would that narrative go? Like when, when you want change from a chef, because you, you want to be you don't want to just come down and like berate them and say, this is garbage to like do better. Like how did he approach it that made it more palatable for you as somebody who, who self-confessed ego, right <laughs> from earlier in your career, uh, how, what changed in you that made this, this engagement not so abrasive because he wasn't abrasive in the way that he did it. Like I said, it was suggestions. It yeah. wasn't him coming down. It was, he really knew how to handle me. Cause I, I was freshly sober. Yeah. Even though I wasn't drinking, my emotions still weren't regulated. Yeah. I've been heavily drinking since I was 15. So I never... You start drinking at 15, you never grow up past a 15-year-old. So I'm a 15-year-old in an adult's body. Yeah. He knew how to, to deal with me very well. Because I was a very angry person at this mm-hmm. time, too. Uh, I didn't want to take feedback. And I was doing just a good enough job that he left me alone. And you didn't want to lose that. Yeah. So he had to be gentle in the way that he approached me. Yeah, you're an asset. Yeah, and yeah. I was also an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is only a couple of years ago. We're only going back four, f- three years ago at this point, right? Or maybe a yeah. little four, four or five years ago. And you recognize now that only that short period ago you were an asshole, right? I still am. You still. I mean, I can be an <laughs> asshole too. You know, like, uh, but like, it sounds like you're moving. You're 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 becoming very self aware, and you're you're trying to make that part of yourself go away, right? Or at least improve it. Safe to say. Or do you, say, do you just accept, embrace the asshole? Really? There's times when you accept it. <laughs> it. I mean, look at the people who are like really good at business mm-hmm. and really like industry leaders. I don't think anybody really says great things about any of those people. Well, it's, it's true. Who does say great things about them? The media. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I recognize I'm a fucking, I am the media. Yeah. But I try to do it in a way that I try to share the industry story, mm-hmm. not the outside PRs. Per, explanation of who we are yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know uh so but yeah but there's a no it's a good point like 
talking to so many people, like I've, I've realized that like I used to look at mainstream media to find my guests and I would realize I'd go talk to these people and be like, you're, you're an asshole yeah. <laughs> or you're not even, like you, you project this image of success, but you're not making any money. Yeah. You know, and, like there's so many secrets in our industry that are like under like, like we, I don't know. We, we, we hold people who either have some kind of mental illness or are complete assholes or just completely unreasonable. And it takes that level of unreasonableness and, like just I don't know like I don't know if we should be aspiring to be like a lot of the leaders in our industry it's true man and, and so many of these like leaders and whatnot whether they get James Beard awards or Michelin stars like you have to understand how political these systems are to get voted into anything like that I'm under no guise like even though I've worked for a lot of Michelin star chefs uh, James Beard winners like I don't think I'll ever get it because I refuse to play that game. Well, I, I kind of want to expose this game. Honestly, I, I, I don't think James Beard has ill intent, right? I don't no. think they, they do a lot of good things for the industry too. Definitely. And they're creating a lot of awareness right now about equality. And I, I like what they're doing. I like what they're trying. Like they're making an effort to self correct. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do believe that platforms like this have way too much pull and leverage in our industry. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and I think we need to talk about like, they shouldn't be able to control the narrative no. of who's successful. I mean, but they do. So what what has to change for that? I, I, I don't have that answer. Well, I think it's happening right now. You know, I think I think it's I think the answer, if I could take a stab at it, is stop giving a fuck about getting a James Beard award. I mean, that, that's that's, <laughs> that's difficult to do when you spent your whole life exactly chasing something it. like that, and then you get to a point when you're like, okay. So most of the restaurants that are either like really high caliber Michelin. James Beard Award winners, probably most of them have a pretty shitty business model and they don't make a lot of money. Uh, most of them. Yeah. And I know because I interviewed a lot of them. When we started talking about money, I'm like, how do you make money? And they're like, oh, yeah. we don't. I'm like, then why are we all trying to aspire to be like you? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, there's a level of fiscal responsibility. Exactly. And that, it, that's ultimately how you... It's not all about money, but it's necessary. But that's how you fucking pay people man that's how you give people security so so noma's doing its thing what's the 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 biggest headline outside of uh they're they're shutting down or moving into version 9.0 or whatever they're at now the biggest thing is that they don't fucking pay people man yeah 30 stages to 30 staff members free, free labor the biggest one of the biggest expenses exactly yeah. and, and and i went through that i did the stage i know that i don't want to do that to people yeah I know that. I mean, there's a balance. I think there's something to be said about going to work for amazing people and realizing that you're not working for a paycheck at that point. Mm-hmm. At that point, you're going to get experience. And there's something to be said about being able to tie your name to name to brands like that. Mm-hmm. It helps open doors. It's, it does. It's cash. It's you know, it's as good as cash. It's, it's as, when you go into the bank and you say, "I worked for Thomas Keller for two years." Yeah, that's like somebody handing you fifty thousand dollars because they're gonna. That's the check that they're that adds value to the money they're gonna give you. Of course, and I would rather go work for free than go to culinary school and pay for it. Yeah, but I also think people should get paid. Yeah, and like I said, there's a balance. Yeah, we could be better about finding that balance exactly. for sure. Um, I hear that. So. It sounds like this was a really great time for you in your life. It was, man. So why did you leave this? He has multiple restaurants. There wasn't an opportunity for you to go do your own thing with him? COVID. That's right. I always forget about that. It was three years ago. Yeah. So <laughs> it was in a ballet and opera house. We were in the middle of uh, Hamilton. Three, uh, three weeks stretch. And like these, it just starts surfacing and floating. And then like, oh, are we going to shut down? 
well, Hamilton doesn't want to shut down. We're going to keep it rolling. And then, you know, the staff started catching it. And it, that week, it just all came to a halt. And I've got a very big facility that I just started giving out all of our products. Like, yeah. There's a smaller restaurant in town called Boya Day, which just got a star. Like, I texted them. Didn't know them at all. I'm like, hey, just come pick up all this stuff. Like, you guys yeah. are going to keep trucking. You guys are the small guys right now. Yeah, and you could probably use some help right now, too. Yeah. Come, like, come take them. this 50 pounds of parm from yeah. me. Because it's going to go bad. Yeah. We gave it all out. Uh, COVID's happening. And at that point in time, uh, my best friend, uh, he had gone to Malta, messaged me, and was like, just come here. I'm like, you can't fly right now. He's like, I'll write you a fake letter that says you're my private chef, and I'm a millionaire, and I need you. <laughs> And, like, this is the worst part of COVID. Nobody is leaving. Also, if you're a millionaire, you get a pass for travel because I can't survive without my private chef. The world we live in is kind of ridiculous. Dude, it worked. I I get to MIA. I'm checking in. They're like, you can't go anywhere. Like, here's this letter. Like, who cares about this letter? I'm like, here's the letter. Like, Okay. And it worked. Wow. So I get to Portugal, and they're like, you can't fly through here. And they put me in a little room, and they're going to send me back to Florida. And, you know, I, I look at outside of the little room, and there's a door, and walk out the door. Without getting a passport stamp, <laughs> nothing. And all of a sudden, I'm in Portugal. How did you get back in? Oh, you had your passport. You I had my passport. Yeah. And at that time, if you were in the EU for two weeks and had quarantined, then, you know, you could fly within. Got it. So I came back eight hours later and was like, yeah, I've been here for weeks. Flew to Malta. Ended up staying there for three months. It was, like, the best. Skin diving for sea urchins. And while I'm there, I, I, I get a call from somebody who had worked for Brad also. Um, he's like, uh, what do you think about running a steakhouse? And I was like, you're working for Grutman, aren't you? He's like, how'd you know? I'm like, I just had a feeling. I'm like, yeah, they're looking for a chef at Poppy Steak. All right. Poppy Steak? Yeah, it's a, it's a restaurant here. It's, it's uh, owned by David Grutman, who's like kind of the king of Miami, if you will. Mm-hmm. We tried to hook up with him this week. I'm sure you did. Didn't get it. Didn't get Didn't break that seal. Yeah. <laughs> Someday. We'll get him on the show. I really love what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I really didn't know much about him. Like, I've been in my... I keep my head in the sand. David, if you're listening to this podcast, my friend, <laughs> you're welcome to be on the show. Yeah. Please, anytime. So... I fly back from Malta just to take this interview, you know, take an interview. And they made me do two tastings and uh, started looking at running poppy steak. And at the end of the day, uh, they were like, what do you think about running the Good Time Hotel? And I don't know what that is. Well, we're doing a joint venture with Pharrell. Uh, we've got this hotel that's opening up on in South Beach. Like, you'd run it. Did that. Went over there for a year. And, like... Talk about learning how to... Maybe I should get Pharrell on the show. <laughs> Good luck with that one too, bud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so I started that, and like that was just a monster, man. Everything Grubman touches just kind of turns to gold. And What like, do you think it is that he does? Knowing Being in behind the scenes, what is it that he does that makes... Is it busy savviness? Is it branding? Is it marketing? What is it? It's all of that, man. Yeah. The guy's just got the Midas touch. Yeah. Uh, he's also like an energizer bunny the guy is always like going yeah uh yeah and and started working there and started developing that program and uh i'd never learned so much about running a business because if you look at like top 10 uh highest revenue independent restaurants in the country 
four of them are Grubbins here in Miami. That's crazy. Number one is Komodo. I think they're doing like $44 million a year. That's crazy. It's ridiculous. So what did, you said you learned the most about business during this time. So yeah, we just opened this hotel. And you know, of course, they have their initial projections for F&B. And we're, we're constantly pouring over these numbers and, and tweaking them. Um, and then you know, we had a, a very large pool there that we hosted huge DJs at. You know, Steve Aoki plays one weekend. Marshmallow's playing the next weekend. And we're doing volume, serious volume. And then Miami Beach comes in and basically shuts us down. Uh, all of the residents around the hotel complained. Uh, we got put to a point where we couldn't have headliners. We couldn't have giant pool parties. So, you know, we were on track to do highly above $20 million wow. that first year. Wow. And what percentage of profit were they running? <sighs> Ballpark. 15, 20? I'd say 15. Okay. That's pretty good. On what do you say, 20 million? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so so the vice president of Groot is this guy, Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo is... How do you spell that last name? Uh, just like uh, the Cuomo's from New York. Okay. Um, the guy is... Uh, Are you saying Crow? Like C-R? Cuomo. C-U-O-M-O. Got it. The guy is like restaurant rain man. Like... He can tell you what numbers you're going to do before you open a restaurant without really looking at anything. He's one of the best operators and one of the most financially savvy people that I've ever met in my life. Uh, guy's just a monster, dude. He's, he's, he's a good guy. So, well-rounded, good guy. Did, you, did, you, did they give you any of the details on how to do something to do it better that we can take and replicate in our businesses? That was Specific the, things. That was one thing is like... Uh, when you're operating at that high of a revenue level um, and you're, you're doing very good without their guidance, uh, especially in such a big empire, if you're not raising red flags, there's no reason for them to hover over you and, and keep trying to mentor you or do anything. And I, I was good enough at that point. Yeah. I had run very large operations. I'd been in hotels. I'd been in restaurants. They, they largely left me alone, and it was, it was great. So what did you observe about what they do from the inside looking out getting behind the scenes as as far as culture as far as standards as far as uh operations as far as like the the weird like like the scientific like psychology shit that we're not even aware of that makes people spend more money like what were the things that you were seeing them do that was just next level that you're like wow you know i don't i don't think i could really comment on so much of they're doing anything different but they they had this this wave coming off of operating live which is like one of the biggest nightclubs in the world they have all these celebrities surrounding them like that's what it was it's like pinnacle buzz culture like every restaurant you open okay let's get bad bunny there let's get david beckham there and miami's that kind of superficial town where like people will naturally just suck to that and it's a good business model for them yeah it works it works in a city like i don't know if that model works in, a, in other cities, but Miami is such a party city. It's such a no disrespect to your city, dude. Disrespect it. It's such a superficial city. It, <laughs> it like, is. It's like like nobody gives a fuck about you unless you have status. Exactly, and and like I'm not that person. Yeah. So for me to work for this company was very strange. So you're you're in a part of the world where the most richest superficial fuckholes part of my language come flock here and they are spending money to show people how awesome they are yeah look how fucking impressive i am i'm gonna spend 
money is not an object. And you know that about, and you're in the hospitality industry, you're in the, the hotel industry, and you know people are looking, they're, they want, they're coming to your place to dump money out so people know how impressive they are. Mm-hmm. You can exploit the fuck out of that. Yeah. And if you know how to, like, you just give people the option to be an asshole. Like, here is a $20,000 bottle of champagne. The option, everybody... Here's a $100,000 bottle of champagne. Everybody in this this fucking town is naturally an asshole. <laughs> like, it, but that's not everywhere. And I, I, I think that's part of the reason why the group hospitality, like, they just exploit how much of an asshole people are willing to be. Like, yeah. not an asshole, but you know what I mean? Like, a, a rich, privileged person. Like, yeah. they, they recognize that and they say, you want to dump your money here? Like, let's give you a big hole. Yeah, like look at Poppy Steak. <laughs> yeah. They've got a, this this thousand dollar steak. Like it, it's one degree off from Salt Bay. Yeah, they bring out this thousand dollar Wagyu steak in a briefcase and they show it to you, and it's a whole show. Everybody in the room's looking at you, like that's what sells. Yeah, here in Miami. Yeah, it, so it, I think that's a part of the the equation. We, we I don't know if you can go to nebraska and pull that off you know what i'm saying definitely not there's few markets that can support that new york los angeles miami where the the money of the world goes it shows off um so when you if you if you can build a reputation in that market uh i I think part of the secret of what they do is that things i've seen people other people do is like you just got to give people the the option to, to spend money like they might not get it but they're definitely not going to get whatever that thing is if it's not an option so give the high rollers the option to show people how much how impressive they are. You got to give them that outlet. I think you know part of the psychological thing that I learned there was like don't put the most expensive thing on the menu. Constantly have it as a verbal special. And then give them FOMO, man. The fear of missing out of this yeah. thing. I've only got 5 of these left. Yeah. This thing's $1000, you know, you're going to do it and everybody in the room is going to see you. Yeah. And then it just fucking happens, man. Yeah. And it's like this gross display of wealth. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than that. And I don't mean to be disrespectful. He's accomplished the groupman groups accomplished so much, yeah. you know, and they're impressive individuals. Right. Um, but I mean, is there anything else from this part of your life that's worth sharing with our listeners as far as lessons learned about business? And like you said, this is where you grew the most, like you learn the most about business. So yeah, now's the time to get it out. I mean, it was it was learning how to forecast properly, you know. It was what does forecasting speaking of assholes? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's Miami for you. Uh, what did you learn about how to forecast properly? So this whole thing is happening with the the zoning and everything and we're getting shut down and we're 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 on track to do so much and it's drastically changing. Our business levels dropped. So it's a partnership with Highgate Hotels. Uh, Highgate Hotels had this guy, uh, Avi Yesowich. He was running the hotel side of things. And the guy clicked around on an Excel spreadsheet faster than I've ever seen somebody click. I can't. I don't understand those people. The guy was amazing. Uh, between him and Cuomo, just their ability to accurately guess what we're going to do on a month-to-month basis in food and beverage revenue based off of cover counts, based off of seasonality, based off, okay, F1's coming in this month. Like, their, their ability to look at such a bird's-eye view of everything that's going to happen in Miami over the next year and how we're going to be able to pull in this much money was just amazing. To get ahead of it. Exactly. To find the opportunities and to be the first of the follow-up on those opportunities. Plus, when I feel like you, when you have a reputation like that, people, like, flock to you. Opportunity comes to you. Yeah. So, 
you know, I, I, hit, I hit a year there. And it's, it's a grind working for these guys. You're so busy. Yeah. And you're always understaffed because they have so many operations here in town. That's How's the culture there? Um, it's a grind. Yeah. Uh, we can, we can, yeah. I'll accept that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. You know, you, you have a lot of pressure on you because you've got all these celebrities. You've got this massive volume that you're doing on top of all these people that want to fuck celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, after a year of it, I, I was like, okay, so I, I've done this. I've got it on my resume. I'm at a point in my life where I'm not particularly happy once again. And I, I just left. I, I gave him a month and a half notice. I made it through Art Basel with him, which is like the worst week in Miami. And after that, you know, I, I took a, a solid year off. Like I started dating a girl. I wanted to spend time with her. Uh, you know, do you mind me asking how you could do that fiscally? Cause you went from three years prior to this spending all of your money to being able to sustain yourself for a year. Yeah. Uh, were you making that much money working for group? It was decent. Yeah. It was, above average uh and when you work that much you don't spend it mm-hmm. you're always working yeah, yeah. um but there's also that a lesson t- here to save you know i mean i'm, I'm, Live not, I'm not gonna say that i did that okay <laughs> um no you I know love the honesty. i had a i had a condo i still do um i i decided that i don't want to keep attributing to other successes like it's painful for me to put this much work in for this other guy to be in front of a camera and joining this 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 wealth class that is spending money here. Like, God, it's it's painful to work that hard for somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I, I took out a uh I refinanced my mortgage, took out some money and decided that I was gonna start my own place. And uh at that point in time this kind of boom was happening in Miami. Like major food group had come in uh, Groot's expanding at an ever-increasing rate. So this is about a, a year ago, the beginning of 2022. Yeah. This is going on. Yeah. Yeah, because you, your last, and I don't know if these, these dates are accurate, December 2021 is when you... Well, it's when I left Groot. Got it. So, like, in this time period, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for uh, a place, like, I didn't know if I wanted to open a pizza place because that, that piqued my interest at the time. Um, didn't know if I wanted to, you know, open a, a fine dining place. I just knew that I wanted to, to do something that was mine. And sixty thousand dollars doesn't go very far. No, uh, especially when you can't find a second generation restaurant because, like, Miami's seen this influx of people just flocking here from California, from New York. Well, yeah, it was the one place where you could still do hospitality. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't find a second generation restaurant, so that means I needed to put in my own grease trap. That means I needed to put in my own hood, and I knew that I didn't want to have partners. Yeah, and if you're new to the, the industry and you don't know what he means by a second generation restaurant we're talking about turnkey something where you don't have to put any of your own money into it it's you're someone's exit strategy right you're like you're taking over a failed restaurant or mm-hmm. somebody who just want who's like over and wants to get out like it's like okay i'll take on all these assets mm-hmm. flat rate um is that i'm assuming that's what you mean by it like that that's like what I you're mean, looking for low cost go in do my own thing yeah well i mean like when you when i hear turnkey that means the plates and everything are there okay I wasn't looking for that. All I wanted was a hood and a grease trap. Got it. I wanted to do everything else myself. Got it. I didn't want to have partners, and, you know, I, I spent $60,000 looking for this shell, just surviving off it. That's how I survived. Yeah. I'm not going to attribute it to, to me saving a bunch of money, but, you know, I took out this chunk of money and spent a year looking for a space and enjoying myself, you know. I went to Spain and yeah. Italy with my girlfriend. No, you need to do that. Yeah. And then uh, I hit a point where I was like, okay, well, this isn't working. 
can't find the space. Money's almost gone. Got to start working again. So I started applying around. Uh, and I got a call from Brad Kilgore one day. Like, you applied to Fable? Like, yeah, why? It's like, I'm their consultant. You want you want this job? <laughs> I get it for you. I'm like, all right, well. Good to know, people. Let's take, it a, let's take a look at it. Yeah. You know, I, I set up to do a tasting, and, like, it was impossible to set this up. The owner lives in L.A. So after a month of, like, trying, I finally set up this tasting and did the tasting for this guy, Matthew Rosenberg, and uh, went well. He offered me a job. And uh, this was about eight months before we actually opened Fable. Okay. So you op- so you- March 2022 is is when they offer you the job. And I'm guessing the next, uh, what? The- so what would be March, April? So what was it, November of 2022 when you guys opened? Well, how long is December. December. Got December it. 1st. Got it. So oh. you're three months in. Yeah, yeah, we're not very far along. So what's the past year been like for you? This is the first restaurant that you've built out. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's the first restaurant I built out where I had this much input. Okay, what was that transition like for you? Um, well, I have this 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 very strange history and wealth of knowledge, and you know, I came onto this project at a very tender moment where you know they had, they had gotten Brad to design a kitchen for them, and you know they had an idea of what they wanted to do with food, and they had the the floor plan, and we were all under construction and. You know, I came in and I just started looking at things and I was like, oh, this is, this thing's kind of a mess. Uh, like, things were not laid out for efficiency. Uh, it really and we, how much emphasis did we put on that early in this interview, right? The, <laughs> the, the lessons you got on efficiency and... Yeah. Yeah. And I had just come from, you know, running a lot of different things, like running a massive hotel that did volume and... Uh, so I started looking at how I needed to tweak things. So give me some exa- examples of what made it inefficient. So if we see this in our own place, we'd be like, oh, this isn't a good idea. Um, electrical outlets in the kitchen. You go in. Uh, they do a floor plan for all of your equipment. You put electrical outlets for that equipment. And then, like, when I got this place, they didn't have any convenience outlets. So where am I going to plug a blender into? So mid-construction... I start having to tweak everything. I start having to pour in to every ounce of this place. Like, if they missed electrical outlets in the kitchen, what what else else is going on? So how do you, like, start to go through that search? You just put yourself in the position of, like, trying to be ahead of, like, like going through the motions before you have to go through the motions? Yeah. Like, that was one of the things that I took away from, from running the Ballet and Opera House is every day was different. So every day I had to come up with that plan of how I'm going to attack it. How am I going to, to run this efficiently? And week to week, it was different every every single week. So it's very natural for me to, to look at a floor plan and figure out what's going to go wrong. Yeah. So I started doing it with the kitchen, and then eventually I got to the dining room, and it was the same way, man. Things just weren't laid out quite right. Were you talking to your old boss? You're like, what the hell did you do in here, man? You're consulting on this? What's going on? <laughs> no, no. He wasn't the consultant. There was <laughs> so much there to build out the kitchen. Uh, I mean, he had some, some minor input, but he was more so there to find a chef. Got it. So, so consulting on, you know this market, you know who can handle this, who's that? Yeah, yeah. So how do you have these conversations of like this? Like how do you go into like recognizing so much inefficiency? Did you correct a lot of those inefficiencies or are they, is there still some remnants of it? There's still some remnants. Yeah. There's some things that were beyond reproach. Yeah. And it was very difficult because 
So the owner, Matthew Rosenberg, he's an architect by trade. Uh, very, very well-known architect. This is his first foray into this industry. Uh, it's very difficult to call somebody's baby ugly. And this was his baby. And, you know, initially when I came onto the project, I was very gentle in the way that I approached things. You know, after six, seven months, I was able to open up and become more of myself, which is kind of the asshole. And I just started tearing it apart. Like, Well, sometimes it's good to be an asshole. Everybody needs an asshole. What would we do without an asshole? We'd be in trouble without one, right? It, if I didn't <laughs> become that asshole over that six-month period before opening, it would have been a lot rougher to, to open this place. Yeah. I, I think sometimes people misconstrue candor with being an asshole. Listen, we're on a budget. We're on a timeline. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. Like these are the things. Like you got to be honest. People are paying for that knowledge, that honesty, that 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 candor. Honesty doesn't always work. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you got to put it in a, in a brute force manner. And, yeah. You know, it, it, I, things happen. They, I'm I'm learning when to do that and when not to do that. As much as I don't like assholes, they make shit happen. Yeah, and then, like I knew that if I was going to operate this restaurant, because because love Matthew, but he's not going to be operating this kitchen. Mm-hmm. So why do I need to keep listening to his input on how the kitchen's going to operate? So I just became more and more and more pushy. And now I've gotten to a place where I think we're doing well. Our relationship is, is right where it needs to be. Like, I love working with this guy on a day-to-day basis, you know. Uh, Brad Kilgore had a guy running uh, all of Kilgore Culinary as the director of operations, and his name was Robert De La Rosa. So, so all of Brad's restaurants shut, shut down with the pandemic. I was able to pull him over to be our GM. You know, I have Matthew, who's, who's very visual and stylistically there. So he did all of the architecture and layout of the restaurant and the, the general aesthetics. So I, I got this like dream team of people that can do things that I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm stylistically retarded. Yeah. Like, terrible style. You know, Robert De La Rosa can, can run the floor the way that I know I want it ran. And I can finally focus on the kitchen. And like. It's the best. I love it. Yeah. Cool, man. I'm, I'm happy for you. So uh, what were the biggest challenges for you, like, doing this for the first time, building out the restaurant for the first time? Like, what did you learn through your challenges? You know, find find a, a contractor that you trust. Yeah. Because that's the biggest problem is, you know, even though I was able to go in and look at the floor plans and modify them, doesn't mean it's going to get built out the way you want. Yeah. Because, uh, especially here in Miami, they're not the best people sometimes. You know, you'll, there's people who lie about their qualifications. Um, people talk a big game and then just can't follow through. You know, you've got an architect who's the main owner of this place. So I can tell you right now, he put a lot of love and effort into giving very detailed instructions for how this place is to be built. Yeah, from a, a, an aesthetic standpoint right aesthetic or, and yeah. and in uh an engineering perspective because yeah. he's got a very large firm but did he build the rest of our kitchens <laughs> <laughs> he he has you yeah. know it's it's funny uh when i met matthew uh we were going through some of the stuff that he built he yeah. built a place in philadelphia called the fittler club yeah and after working for spraga spraga's empire shut down as well he was the chef of fittler club when they opened so no connection whatsoever. We're talking like you built the filler club. I knew a guy that used to work at filler club. Uh, oh, you know, Spraga. Yeah. World. I worked for that guy. Yeah. 
That's why, you, that's why you don't want to be an asshole in this industry. Because <laughs> <laughs> things get around. It's um, true. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned earlier uh, that you worked a lot on your emotional intelligence. When you're like, by that I mean you're, you were quick to anger. Oh, yeah. You were when you were younger. And you said you've come a long way. I have. So w- what happened? When did this happen for you? Uh, it was when leaving Groot, man. Because okay. Groot was such a high-tension place. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I worked in the hotel uh, at the Four Seasons. But I wasn't in charge there by any means. I was a cook. Yeah. Uh, you don't get brought into HR when you're a cook so much as when you're the executive chef and you throw temper tantrums. Mm. Uh, week one of opening, I was brought into HR. How'd that go? <laughs> uh, I like to think that my value outweighed the uh, the crime. Okay. They made it work for me. Okay. But uh, but why was it so bad that it changed how you are and how you do things? What did they What did they change in you? Like how? Do you mean you mean to tell me HR actually works? No, no, no. Well, it kind of did. Uh, the the lady that ran HR at the Good Time Hotel was yeah. this, this lady named Crystal, and and I I spent a lot of time in her office. <laughs> Best Some, friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we we had a very good relationship, but like, you know, uh, it, it wasn't so much that anything there changed me. Is you know when I got done working for Groot. I was emotionally tired, mm-hmm. like very, very tired. Yeah. So, you know, I spent some time off. Uh, I got a girlfriend. Always helps. Yeah. Nice. It helps calm you down a yeah. little bit. And they keep you, they, they keep you honest. So going into this project, I like, I thought very, very deeply about how I want to affect other people's lives. Mm. Cause I'm sure a lot of people left working for me there, like not feeling good. Um, and I, I kind of wrote my own little manifesto of how I wanted to treat people. Oh, I don't want to yell in the kitchen anymore. And and I really went back to square one. And that was, you know, do or do not. There is no try. Yeah. So so now the, there's a new do for you. Do not be an asshole. <laughs> no, no. Uh, just don't get to the point of yelling and yeah. screaming and, and, and taking that emotional burden on. Mm. If something's not working and somebody's not working and it's just not there, don't let it keep happening and festering like I got to a point where I'm in my career where I, I cut people out very quickly so, if, if, if you're not working the way I want you to work I'm not going to yell at you yeah. I'm going to fire you yeah. and we're going to move on yeah I mean that's important like I can't remember who says this I think it's I think it's um Gino Wickman in his newest book uh, 10 Disciplines he talks about one of those 10 disciplines is, is work with people you love mm-hmm. and it's a discipline to do that because sometimes you just need people. You need somebody to do the job. Yeah. You, I, you need to plug that hole, right? It's uh, true. And you need discipline to not plug the hole and to find the right person that yeah. you does that doesn't drive you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been in this town for, for four years, and I have all these different people that I've worked with, and I literally cherry-picked the people that I wanted to come run this restaurant with me, and which is funny because I've fired these people before. Yeah. But I knew that me firing them like uh, brought something to the table for them. Yeah. And the fact that they wanted to come back and work for me spoke volumes. So I worked on not being that guy. They worked on not triggering that guy. Yeah. And I've very rarely had a chef team either that I've worked for or worked with that I've enjoyed so much as I have here. It's, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. So really you just raised your standard on who you're willing to surround yourself with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we've covered a lot. Before we go to the speed round, I, I want to just touch on like where you are today. Like, what is like what's the picture today? Uh, what are you working? Like, what are your challenges today? How are you overcoming those? And what's the future look like for you? Well, 
you know, we just opened Fable. It's, it's less Congratulations. than three, three months ago. Yeah. Thank you. Thank it's you. Beautiful space, by the way. We're sitting on the rooftop right now. You guys can hear the outdoor, the ambiance. So we're right on final to the airport right now. You heard the planes flying over exactly. the entire time. But the space, we're on top of the roof in Miami. Skyline views, beautiful decor, man. Like, you must be on cloud nine right now. Yeah, man. Uh, so we, we've been open less than three months. Uh, our opening was massive because that was right in the middle of our basil which is like the worst time in miami to to live here um so we opened up with a bang you know fable's not a place that's just backed by a restaurant group it's not um funded by by extremely wealthy people um so for us to make the impact we had in such a short period of time and get the the business levels that we're starting to get is is really something that i didn't think was going to happen this quickly so what what do you think you're doing that's getting you this these accolades this attention so early on uh it's a combination of things you know we're, uh you know matthew rosenberg like i said is the, the main owner here um we set out to open something that wasn't just a restaurant you know miami's got this this way of pinning some places like this club strants um but really we wanted to press it further than that so if you go to a a, a group place that's that's a club strant. you know there's a dj playing top 40s music uh, we wanted this place to be different. Uh, Matthew's whole ethos going into this was was tapping into all five of your senses. He he really did that, and like I said, he's this whole team is is comprised of people who who have very different skill sets, and we we let each other do them. So Matthew is very good about you know choosing the exact music that he wanted, uh, choosing the. Uh, the decor of the restaurant, even down to the uniforms. Like we have a partnership with a company uh, out of Tulum called uh, Caravana. You know, you go in our bathrooms and, and the soaps are by a luxury brand called Birido. Um, you know, we have an in-house music consultant that, that only picks DJs that play a certain aesthetic of music. Yeah. Music has a huge role and like, like, like even playing certain music at different times of the evening. Right? And that, that's what happens here yeah. is because we do have a very high energy end of night like it it changes from restaurant do you know the name of that consultant that, that helps with the, the music and picking music because that would be a great episode just diving deep into like the psychology of music oh he's, he's right over there his, oh, really? his name's Tempka nice <laughs> might have to go say hi before we leave today uh but yeah like that's what Fable is it's, just, it's an amalgamation of us trying to tap into all five of your senses so you know this being a restaurant is only one part of it you know, we have a fashion part. We have uh, a scent part where Matthew I smelt it when we walked in. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's just one of the many scents. You know, we have uh, an actual like kind of perfume that we have that Matthew develops himself. The guy's got his fingers into everything, um, and in the food section, he's 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 let me really do what I wanted, which is the first time in my career. What's that like? Uh is it one of those be careful what you wish for scenarios where it's like, Oh, I'm now I'm responsible for this creativity. No, no, no. I love it. I love what I'm putting out. Yeah. Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea and I'm very comfortable in that. Yeah. Um, you know, this restaurant got pegged as Mediterranean and, and middle Eastern and neither of those things. I'll tell you that what much. So when I, when I wanted to go open my own place originally, I was still working for Brad and I developed this idea of like, you know, I spent a lot of time in India in my travels I spent a lot of time in Israel I spent a lot of time in Malta so I wanted to open something that that I lovingly dubbed Silk Road Cuisine 
it was this the stretch starting in, in like China, India, going all the way over and through the Middle East and into the Mediterranean. Would you call it Silk Road? Silk, Silk Road cuisine. Silk Road. Cuisine. Yeah, Got but it. then there's that whole drug market. And, you know, when I tried to dub it that, it didn't get a great connotation. Uh, so that's what it is, is inspiration from all of these different points. I figure that kind of thing, that would do good in this market. <laughs> Sorry. No, well, investors don't think so. <laughs> yeah, <I got> you. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's really what the food is here, man. Like I have very heavy Indian influences, very heavy, like very Middle Eastern influences and, and very heavy on the spices. Exactly. Yeah. You know. um, so to call it Mediterranean, I think is a extreme bastardization. Yeah. I, I really hate that term. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably the, the, with the Israel, what you said Israel. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, Mediterranean, the closest thing along the Silk Road, I guess at the end, it's the end of the road, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I can see how it could be confused why people might go that way. Yeah. Uh, so earlier you mentioned, um, you're doing all this work, uh, for someone else's, you know, like, I guess recognition, getting, getting the, the recognition for your work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you wanted to do something where you could kind of, you know, be seen for the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're getting that here? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Um, every facet of Fable shines in its own way. Why do you think it's so important to be seen? It's not so much that I wanted to be seen as that I wanted control, which mm. is, like, I, I think a byproduct of the whole alcoholism thing. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be told constantly by other people, this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted creative freedom. Yeah. But I think it is important to be seen. You know, it's it's weird. Like, 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 I think it's really important to be seen because it's literally what we need. Like, we we in like you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like food and shelter, right? Uh, security, and then literally beyond beyond that is belonging, mm -hmm. being seen, being valued. You know, and it like it's such an unsexy thing to to admit. You know, like I'm confident. I don't need to be seen. Like I, I don't have an ego, but we all have a little bit of an ego. It's to be human, to have a little bit of an ego. You got to check your ego. You can't let your ego get control, like get, get the, the best of you, but to be, to, to have an ego is to be human. I feel like, yes. And you know, we all have egos. Oh, I've, I've definitely have one. Yeah. Um, I guess what's more important to me so much as, is myself being seen is my food being accepted. Cause what I'm trying to do is, is, I think drastically different from what anybody's doing. Um, this kind of mashup between the Middle East and Indian flavors and uh, having them rooted in a lot of very classical techniques. Like one of our dishes here is a, is a butternut squash gratin, but it has a, a South Indian curry on it and a banana yogurt. And it's just this odd mashup. Like usually when you go to an Indian place, like it leans pretty heavy into like classical Indian. Um, I think what we're doing here is unique. I've never seen anything like it. It's really what I'm pushing for. Mm. So what's on this idea of um, to inspire, empower, and transform the industry? Where is the industry now? And where do you think the industry could be or should be? If you could change things about the industry to improve the industry, what, what would that look like in your eyes? What, what needs to change about our industry, if anything? Oh, man. We're at a very delicate crossroads right now in our industry uh you can say it's inflation i don't know how much of it is actual inflation or price gouging so i feel like that's there too um i'm in a very different location than anywhere else in this country like the things that work here don't work anywhere else like, i don't know how many club restaurants there are yeah. elsewhere so 
I, I don't know what the exact pinpoint answers or problems well, are. I think what you're going to see is more club strats across the country. Mm-hmm. I think that there's uh, in, in an age where mo- more people are not we're more connected but disconnected than ever before. We don't we don't go we don't bump up against people like we used to. Mm-hmm. You know, like our lives were traditionally we're surrounded by people. You know, like we were in a tribe. We had we we were one of like fifty to one hundred and fifty people for most of our existence as human beings, right? And all of a sudden, like we're now all working from home. We don't go to church like we used to. I'm not a religious person, but I think church served a purpose to bring people together and just to create a sense of community and support, right? Mm-hmm. People, um, we don't. We literally don't need each other. We live in a world where we rely on the market and on the government. We don't need our community anymore. We don't need our government. We don't need our community. We don't need our religion, like our, our church. We don't need that shit anymore. Our, our government and marketplace takes care of us, but we still do need it. We need to go bump up against people. We don't do it at work. We don't do it at church. Where the fuck do we do it? Right? Like I think places like this that are like third place. It's not a restaurant. It's not about turn and burn. It's more about like creating a vibe. Mm-hmm. Come be here. You're welcome here. Like is. I don't, but I also want to put words into what you're trying to do here. Is that, I think that's very accurate. Like it's a place to go and feel like it's your spot. You know, I I quite hate to quit or keep harping on, on saying fable is unique. Yeah. I literally think it very much is. Uh, give that a minute to go by. Uh, we see you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Somebody needs to be seen right now. Yeah. <laughs> we, we put so much emphasis onto to each different part of this that I, I, I truly think it is unique. Like you can go to other club restaurants in town. And you're not going to get treated well. You're going to get treated like a cow. Mm-hmm. They're going to milk you for your money. Mm-hmm. I think what we're really trying to do is, is offer unique and individual food that's, that's of a Michelin level. Uh, I think we're trying to offer that service. Uh, we've, we've got a very large reservations and, and service team that is dedicated to, you know, we try to know most guests' names if they have a reservation before they walk in the door. What's your average turn? <sighs> so we seat about 275. Um, since we're such a new restaurant, we're, we're not hitting full capacity all the time. Um, average turn 150, and we'll we'll hit three turns on a Friday. Okay. Uh, how long are they here? How long are guests here? Yeah. Usually about two hours. Two hours. So, but so that, that's, that's much longer than usual. Yeah. But, but, but I we look around to... and like I see cushions. Like I feel like I'm on someone's patio, right? Like, you know, like someone's really nice home patio right now. Yeah. Like, this is, I feel like I'm at someone's house right now. Is that, but in a good way, like some fancy person's house. Yeah. You're here in the daytime too. You come yeah. at nighttime and like we've got all the torches lit and yeah. it, it's a very intimate environment in which we we try to keep people here long but that's a, that's a, i meant that in a good way yeah like, it, no no I, yeah i get it it feels like, like and it's it's made to be that way it's made to be yeah. like like a warm bath man yeah you get in you don't, i don't want to leave that's why i'm making this interview go long don't want to get out man <laughs> you know and i i use for example uh i use carbone here in town as my uh kind of measuring sticker or my talk to the front of house when you go to Carbone, the food's okay. It's pretty good. It's great. It's good. Nothing mind-blowing. But what happens at Carbone is, you know, Major Food Group did something really wonderful with their service staff. You come into Carbone, you feel loved. Mm. That's what I want from my staff. How do you get your staff to do that? 
by constant coaching. Mm. You know, I think that's a. What's the coaching look like? It's 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 in lineup and it's it's a it's a constant talk. Like we try to block off at at least a half an hour for lineup, and it's it's uh it's us telling them expectations and then reviewing them throughout the night. As much as I am the chef here, I spend a lot of time on the floor. I spend a lot of time telling servers what I expect of them. A lot of that is, you know, at the front door, we have a face list every night. If you make a reservation, we Google you. We try to find your picture. We try to know when you walk in the door, hey, hi, Mr. Smith, how are you? Welcome. Yeah. When people walk in the door and they've never been here and that happens, that's like the first step in them like melting. And then you come sit down on some comfortable cushions and the music's just right at 8 o'clock. It's a nice beat going. You stay two hours, it's 10 o'clock, and the music's coming up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And where normally you would leave here and go out to like a club or a bar, like we've kind of got you at that point. And you feel so comfortable that all of a sudden bottle service starts here and we can, we can wheel you out a um, bottle of Class A if you want it. Mm-hmm. We can do that. Or if you want wine, we've got a Master Somme. We've got really good wine. We, we tried to make an environment where we, we capture people and they stay here and not a turn and burn place. Mm-hmm. I, I do think, I think that you're going to see more people focusing on not necessarily volume in one night, but volume, consistent volume over time. Mm-hmm. Like do one less turn every night, but those people keep coming back because they feel comfortable here. I think there's more stability in that and trying to fill your reservation book and said, you know, like maybe not. No, it's true. Uh, we we so we set up we we call it a manifesto. We've got a twenty point manifesto yeah. here at Fable, and uh, number one is uh, return guests. Mm. We want you to come back. We want you to you know know everybody here. We want to know your name, and we, we want you to know our names as well, because you're probably going to treat us better. Yeah, and yeah. Like it's a cyclical thing. It's it's weird that we live in a time where we're surrounded by so many people that it's hard to keep track of people's names. Like that in itself is a very unique thing in our existence. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we don't, we're not aware of what we're starving ourselves. I think as we learn more about human behavior and the way we, we evolved to exist on this planet and we, we start to lean into that, it's going to show, it's going to force us to slow down. Mm-hmm. It's going to force us. I think there's so many people that are project, projecting like, you know, Elon Musk is going to attach like rope, like computers to our brain. But no matter what, like we're still going to be at the end of the day, we're still going to be human. We're, we're, we have a firewall. Like mm-hmm. our evolution it can only go so far and technology is going way further than that. But the more we learn about technology is also like science and biology and learning more about us and how we tick and how we function. And that is con- continue. We're continuously, continually learning more mm-hmm. about that. And I think the more we learn about that, it's going to really steer where the hospitality industry goes because at the end of the day, this industry is all about people and figuring people out and being ahead of the curve of the person and like anticipating needs. Right. And just being there. But when we know how you're going to react to things, cause we know the science of it, it's, it feels seamless, but mm-hmm. I think it's going to force us to slow down because we're, we evolved to be in an intimate place with intimate we, relationships. Like we need these things. And when we can get that, it's more valuable than the food. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain like, a primal quality that we all feel very comfortable with when, when you get something very primal, like the ability to not be on your phone and have a good time, like feels better than ever mm. because, because people get so much stress from looking at their phones all the time. If you can actually put it away and connect with everybody around you, 
it's amazing how good it yeah. feels when it which should just be natural yeah and and that's what we've created here is is a is an environment to where we're trying to get you to put your phone away without ever telling you to put your phone away mm. so again inspire empower and transform the industry how have you personally transformed as a person who are you today versus the man you were 12 years ago 15 years ago huh. uh well you're a boy then yeah yeah <laughs> exactly um no, I think we've covered that through this whole thing. You know, I went from being like the sloppy, drunk, line cook through to the to the angry, sober guy. And, <laughs> and now I'm just kind of like coasting. Yeah. You know, I'm starting to have my, my creative abilities, starting to get comfortable in that, um, starting to be comfortable with who I am. And that comes with age. And mm. That's where we're at right now. Yeah. I've really loved today's conversation. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. and We're going to bust out a speed round. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Mm. Brute force. What is your biggest weakness? Ego. How are you overcoming that? Uh, emotional uh, honesty. What's one thing you're looking for when you're growing your team? A quality, a trait, a characteristic? Uh, honesty and consistency. Mm. How do you know if someone's honest? I ask questions that I already know the answer to. What's your biggest challenge today? Finding honest people. How are you dealing with that challenge? Lots of Craigslist ads. Yeah. <laughs> Putting your podcast out. Hopefully we can help send people your way, right? Uh, we'll have an opportunity to share your contact information at the end. Uh, share one code of conduct, or sorry, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value, a way to be. It's consistency again, Yeah, man. consistent and honest. It's just consistent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it, dude. Yeah. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service 
you teach your staff. So something that you do within the four walls of your business, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond. Don't say no to the guest. If you do need to turn down a guest request, you have a, uh, a redirection already there. I can't do that, but I can do this. Yes. Can you do this? I can do. (laughs) Yeah. Like absolutely. Never say no. Just redirect. That's perfect advice. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to get, to make us a better restaurant owner or person? I can't read. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) it's been a long time. Um, or a resource that you go to to make you a better person or restaurant owner. You know, I, I want to say go read Danny Meyer. Yeah. Uh, most recommended on the book. Yeah. The it, that's an easy one, man. Yeah. It's a good one. But I, I really What's the biggest lesson from that book? Constant gentle pressure. Yeah. I love it, man. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Manage finances properly. Yeah. How have you, have you gotten better at that over the years? Were you once bad at that? Yeah, my first executive chef job, I tanked that restaurant. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it happens early in our careers. Uh, it was all you, my fault too. What's the one thing you started doing differently that is really just kind of the most major thing that you've learned not to? Not to. Uh, what were you doing in that restaurant that you, you can give other our listeners like a heads up? Don't do it. What I did, just ordering off the hip. Yeah, you know. Control your finances. Do a declining budget. Yeah. Set out how much you want to spend, how much you think you're going to bring in. Set up your percentage of that at 28% and track your invoices daily as they come in. Where did you learn about declining budgets? Kevin Sprague. Got him. Kevin, I'm gonna, I think I'm coming after you, man, to get on the show. I think that would be a good one. Yeah. Uh, what is one piece of technology that you've recently adopted that you've been really impressed with? Something that's kind of helped either with efficiency, profitability, communication, marketing, anything along those lines. Uh, so there's a toss up between two products. One's called Whisk. One's called uh, Extra Chef. Okay, what's Whisk? Uh, they're both inventory platforms and, and uh, invoice logging platforms. Okay, uh, so they both basically do the same thing, but both of them have attributes that I enjoy. But you know, separate. They're a little bit different each of them. Uh, so which? What are the aspects of Whisk that you like versus uh, Extra Chef? Uh smaller company more intimate i can speak to the owner if i need to what services do they provide that you don't get with extra chef um more accurate uh invoice logging okay and what about uh extra chef what do you like about that service why why do you keep that one around uh user interface okay uh and i'm assuming you use toast yeah it's all integrated yeah 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 um it's uh more friendly like i've got a receiving clerk here uh, my receiving clerk does inventory every Sunday. Yeah. And I, I can manage the back end and he can very easily count using their system. Got it. So it's a, it's a process for counting, essentially, for yeah. doing your inventory. Everything. Got it. So it forces you to do it a certain way. If you don't go through this form, this process, this digital process, you'll know. It, it doesn't force you. That's the, the hard part. Is none, of these, none of these places have quite figured out exactly how... Because you can run a restaurant so many different ways. All my recipes are in grams. Yeah. But... You know, setting up conversions and things like that, uh, and that attributing to how we count inventory is not always easy. Yeah, yeah. There's some, some really cool cool tools. So again, that's uh, Whisk and Extra Chef. That's the first time Whisk has been mentioned on the show. Like I said, uh, very small company. Yeah. Uh, shout out to them. Like, I love that entire team very much. Awesome. Uh, this is the last question. We've reached the end. It's a doozy. Get <laughs> ready for it. 
I get eye rolls with this one. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be gone with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the, the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Do or do not. One. <laughs> or is that two? Do or do not? No, that's one. No, that's one. <laughs> um, don't put too much stock into the moment. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's just a moment. Yeah. That's so true. I think we get so absorbed through our lives. And I hate to make everybody feel like shit, but we're so insignificant. Yeah, oh, dude. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my biggest thing to really tear down and upset cook is yeah. like you really think what we're talking about right now matters right nobody's gonna remember your name in 100 years right it's true it's sad it's true but we're a, a blimp in the past yeah. in the big scheme of things what about number three take some time off i love it man this has been a lot of fun thank you so much Jeffy. and thank uh, you you really were a great guest you opened up you got vulnerable that makes for great amazing content and just it hits so much harder so i appreciate you being willing to do that uh who do you respect and admire in the industry if you became a fan of the show tomorrow and you found out this person was a guest on the show dropping knowledge spilling their guts giving advice you'd absolutely listen to this person who is that person or people <laughs> so there's, a chef, leads. there's a chef here in miami who i've never met but he has my favorite restaurant in the city his name's Neven patel Neven Patel owns a restaurant called Ghee, which is my favorite restaurant. Uh, he has Orno. Um, here's another one I'm forgetting the name of right now. Um, all great restaurants. Uh, I've, I've kind of got this weird thing where I don't want to meet them. It's like, don't meet your idols. Yeah. Cause I've had that happen many times and it just spoils. I'm it. constantly disappointing people. They think that like when I meet people, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not that impressed. Like I'm not to say people, I'm people's idols by any means, but like, when I, when I meet people, they're like, oh, it's, I feel like I know you. And like, I'm talking to you because I listen to your show and I hear your voice all the time. And I'm like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'm a letdown to people who have, who have ever <laughs> yeah. seen me f- from afar. But, you know, like, as it stands right now, this guy does great food. Yeah. And uh, his wife responds to Yelp reviews and Google reviews. And, like, if he gets bad press, like, she'll snap back at him. And I love that. <laughs> uh he seems like a great guy. Yeah, beautiful. Neven Patel, look, I'm coming after you. I would love to get you on the show, share your story. And how can we connect with you if we've been really inspired by your story? Maybe we're thinking about making the move down to Miami. We want to join your team. See if we can last. Make sure we don't piss you off. <laughs> uh, the best way is through Instagram. It's my name. It's not Sheffy, and it's, it's, it's Ian Fleischman. I love it, man. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank uh, you for everything, man. My pleasure. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Cheers. Thank you. There is another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Ian Fleischman, for coming on and sharing your chef story, man. Uh, awesome stuff. Uh, just constantly improving, constantly getting that perspective, Coming, overcoming some really challenging life struggles alcoholism and substance abuse is a real issue in this industry and your inspiration to to share that you're able to overcome it congratulations on your sobriety amazing work and uh if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more like it we do need your support there's a ton of ways you can support this podcast you can support our sponsors and we really take the time to find companies uh, that we believe in that we know you'll find value in we don't just promote any tool or service you can use our 
affiliates. Whenever a tool or service is recommended on the show, head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. Today's episode number is 970. So if, you, if there's anything you want to follow up on or just get the show notes to today's episode, be sure to uh, head over to the show notes. And real soon, we're going to be working on getting a transcript over there. And I would like to get back to getting the full uh, video uh, recordings embedded into the episode as well. So if that's your jam, head over to the, the website and uh, check out the show notes where, again, you can find the affiliate link. Uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. So we are putting a lot of energy in YouTube. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but when I'm on the road getting this amazing content and these awesome interviews, I have a videographer with me. Sam Hall from SavinSam.com is killing it on the road, and our YouTube channel is fire right now. Uh, He is creating shorter versions of these episodes, about 15 to 20 minutes. So if you want the highlights, and that sounds like something that you'd jive better with, then head over to YouTube.com slash Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. Find the podcast, subscribe, and thank you in advance. We're really trying to build that that listenership over there at YouTube. So even if you don't want to listen... But you want to support the show, pause this right now and go subscribe and then share this podcast with everybody and anybody you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. Uh, We can't do it without your support. Thank you in advance if you are sharing this thing. Uh, And let's see, our next trip is to Charleston. So if you think you know of somebody who who we need to make an example of, please put them on our radar. Eric at RestaurantStoppable.com is the email. And that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.